This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Twenty second, 2017, and this is part two of Psychology is Dead's 100 Matches of 2016 special. I'm Quentin Moody, and with me to follow up on this everlasting journey is <laughs> Brock. And Brock, we didn't die last time, but I'm pretty sure we're going to die this time. It would be really funny if you had me switch off with somebody else for the second half of this list, though. Oh, yeah. Like if someone someone else just did their top fifty to one hundred to one, yeah, because you actually died and we had to find another replacement. <laughs> that would be that would be some funny shit. <laughs> but we're gonna wrap this up. Hopefully, uh, we might be a little too tight on time, but I think we have a big enough window to get through. It our, should be should be fun. We yeah, we should have a big enough window to get to fifty to one. So no more lollygagging. Brock, are you ready to do the top fifty? Yes, sir. All right. How would you how would you kick us off? Well, I'd kick us off by talking about my number fifty, which won't take too long. It's a uh, Zack Saber Junior versus Drew Gulak from Evolve seventy three. And Capping I have that off. match. Yeah, that match higher. Oh, you do? Yeah, that's kind of surprising for me. Okay, so we'll talk about it later. All right. So my number fifty is a match I know you don't have at all. It's Willow Spray versus Marty Scurll from Progress Chapter twenty five. <laughs> okay, uh, we're starting off with some controversy. Yeah, um, Willow Spray and Marty Skrull had a lot of matches this year, and that's an mm-hmm. understatement of a, you know, thing to say. But this was my favorite, because this actually happened in the context of a feud. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty much what you would expect from Osprey and Marty, but they have a no-DQ step attached to it, so that means they're allowed to go out and do even crazier stuff than they would in a normal, in a, you know, normal setting. What takes it over the top for me is that when we're getting towards the end, Marty's girl gets the handcuffs and um, just ties up with Osprey. And it's a callback to what Skrull said he would do to Osprey if it came down to it in the match, where he said he would do anything it took and he would grab, wrap him up and put him in the chicken wing. And it seemed kind of fitting the way that he would put Osprey away here with maybe the most... uh brutal looking chicken wing I've seen Marty do granted a lot of his chicken wings don't look that uh painful <laughs> but yeah. this one actually looked like it could cause some pain in the shoulders and Osprey when he was uh, handcuffed looking looking up at Marty looked very furious that he got caught up in a situation I know I haven't rewatched this match but mm-hmm. it's something that uh I felt like I needed some kind of representation for the Will Ospreay versus Marty Skrull feud, and 50 felt like it was a good placement because it's right in the middle. Sure, sure. I actually watched this fairly recently. Yeah, because uh, you mentioned that um, Women's Full Away from the same show. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. Uh, it. I will say that I like this one a lot better than their more famous or perhaps infamous match from RevPro just a couple weeks earlier. Um, and partially is due to the things that you're talking about, like this, this no DQ storyline setting where it just has a little bit more structure and it's not 
quite as bananas. Yeah, like, um, the, the, like people, I know most people prefer the Rev Pro match because mm-hmm. it is kind of uh, more ridiculous. And keep on, there is some ridiculous sequences that happen here. But this happens in the context of actual feud as opposed to it's almost exhibition-like when they do it in RevPro and totally. WrestleCon and WXW and, you know, other places where it had just more of a playful feel to it. Yeah, playful, including, like, six umbrellas that, that Osprey <laughs> uses at one point, which is such such a weird thing. Like, I've never, I don't think I've ever been hit with a big, long umbrella. Does, I don't think that hurts too much. Maybe getting stabbed by an umbrella, but... Maybe, but they didn't stab each other. <laughs> I feel like that'd be an interesting, like, weapon like what if marty explored using like you know the pointy end of an umbrella to stab people instead of like you know just whacking them with it like it's a kendo stick i'd appreciate that uh exploration of the character a little more but you didn't like but you didn't care too much with this match it's uh i mean it's better than it could be uh but it's it's not something i love did you like actively dislike any of the marty Scove versus osprey matches oh yeah totally that ref pro match was like um I probably wrote like three thousand words on it for my blog. Uh, it's it, man. It's just some of like the most excessive stuff that it, it doesn't. Uh, a match we'll talk about later. Roy Wilkins versus Trevor Lee has purpose behind the sort of excess that it has, and I'm not I'm not a fan of just like spots and craziness for nothing you know what i mean i get enough of that in like backyard wrestling which i love but i don't consider that like high art all right so moving off from that what's your 49 well uh it's funny (laughs) that we talked about amarty scarl versus will osprey match in number 50 because my 49 is basically the same thing in ccw it's leo rush versus joey janela from ccw's down with the sickness right i really considered putting this on my list because it's such a unique match yeah. but it didn't it's, find a spot it's um it's <laughs> it's really ironic how that turned out <laughs> because because <laughs> i i i could watch these guys do stupid things to each other forever um sadly this match is only somewhere around 30 minutes long but you know it's more than enough because holy shit do they do some really stupid things to each other <laughs> Yeah, that uh, Joey Janela, uh, I'm pretty sure most people have seen it, where Joey mm-hmm. Janela literally falls from the rafters onto a ladder that Leo Rush is placed on. Yeah, it's... It, that, I mean, how, it's... About that, how about that table bump that Leo Rush takes? <laughs> oh, off the um, uh, the first one or the Spanish fly? Which one are you talking about? Um, or towards the end. There's like multiple. There's like, one where, there's like one where the table doesn't break and Leo falls it outside. Yeah, yeah he gets relatively early in the match, like probably in the first half somewhere, um, he gets shoved off of a ladder and he's supposed to go through a pair of tables on the floor, but neither one of them break and he sort of just slips through the two of them. And it's, yeah, it's pretty brutal. But, uh, and then that's only, that's only one of like a dozen spots like that. Uh, and it's, I mean, again, it's not, it's not something I create, I consider like great or, uh, it's, it doesn't have a whole lot of, um, artistic merit, but, it's fun. Yeah, that match is definitely... Uh, I didn't know how I felt about it afterwards, honestly, because it was one of those times where I'm like, I don't know whether I hated it or it's like one of the most creative things I've seen in a while. Sure. It's because like it's a ladder match, and I'm kind of like, you know, the bloom has fell off the, fell off the rose for, with ladder matches you know, for a few years now with me. Really? So, like, I think they actually had a unique ladder match that actually felt 
violent and like the spots were actually hurt like you know meant to main people not just mm-hmm. to like you know be there so good it's, it's it's kind of surprising that in this year-long feud they were able to escalate things because every match individually was pretty bonkers yeah like the two out of three falls match like you would think that they would have had nothing left after after two out of three falls totally but yeah kudos to them so my number 49 is Hideyoshi Kamatani versus Yuji Okabayashi from Big Japan Pro Wrestling's Sumo Hall Show. Oh, okay. I uh, This got fairly close to my list, but didn't make it. So the reason why this made my list is because I think this is... Uh, I have another Hideyoshi Kamatani match higher that kind of fits oh. into the story arc. But this is the um, happy ending mm-hmm. of Hideyoshi Kamatani's rise to the BJW Strong Heavyweight Championship. Whereas, opposed to the other match, he tries and gets close and gets his shit kicked in. Mm-hmm. In this one, he faces the big dog in the division. And well, it's not the big dog. Not the, he's not. It's not the big dog, but he's facing the top guy in Yuji Okabayashi. And he actually pulls out the victory. Kamatani mm-hmm. does take an ass kicking, but he hands it right back to Okabayashi. And the ending here is pretty emotional when the rest of the young boys of the BJW locker room come out and um just swarm Kamatani. And it's a really uh victorious feeling because now the young guy is uh the one on top and it mm-hmm. kinda gives hope to the rest of the roster that, you know, they can reach that level too, is how that, I uh, interpreted that ending. The two top matches on that show were all about those feel good stories. Yeah. That was a real like, you know, that was a real feel good ending, you know, like every young boy and then they're just hoisting Kamatani up on their shoulders. He's the one out of all of them that's gotten to the top so far. So it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how the rest of that uh, um, group plays out with Kamatani being the first one to get that gold. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was most certainly like the most senior of all those members. But I mean, I, I can't imagine that uh, like Hashimoto isn't too far behind him now, you know? Right. So you already did your 49? Yes. Uh, you want to go to 48 now? Yeah. All right. So my 48 is... Will Ospreay versus Ricochet from New Japan, Best of the Super Juniors. <laughs> we're just we're keeping this controversy rolling. Yes, we will. <laughs> now, some people might actually have this match higher than me. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Certain, I'm sure some people called that the best match of the year. And uh, you don't even, what, they wouldn't even make it with your top 300? <laughs> no, it, it it probably, I like Ricochet a lot, so like right. it does make it up there. And, and on some level, it's like, it's a fun spectacle to watch. Right, so... I have this because out of all the Ricochet versus Osprey matches that happened this year, and again, there was mm-hmm. like four, this one felt the most competitive, where the Evolve match was exhibition, as playful as fun, but never really do it for me. The PWG match was uh, them cramming in all their signature spots in like, uh, you know, nine, ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And the OTT match was probably the most epically structured, but uh, this one... It felt special in a way because it's main events in Hurricane Hall, and then uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff here that just doesn't happen often, like the crowd chanting "This is awesome" and "Holy shit" at these guys. Like that doesn't happen often. So whenever, like, um, you know, the last time it happened was the Honor Rising shows. Mm-hmm. So it's something that's kind of unique to see. And then Willow Spray and Ricochet just have an athletic spectacle. But besides that, I think there was really good storytelling there from those two because Osprey had been on the losing streak in the best of the super juniors. And this was the match that kind of turned his momentum into him eventually being the winner. So 
I like the competitive edge there. There's some nasty strike exchanges that showed that besides being athletic guys that can do flips, they can get down and dirty when they want to. Like, they were exchanging strikes, and then Osprey caps it all off with a headbutt. Mm-hmm. It feels, like, gritty, even though they're doing all this, you know, flippy shit. So I like the way they structured that match. And, uh, yeah, some people, you know, it flipped the wrestling world on his head and caused quite a stir. And, on, yes, some, and on some level, I appreciate that. Because there's not a lot of matches that cause that kind of a discussion, yeah. whether it's good or bad. Yeah, I get so, that. Yeah, so it was some, something that, you know, got points for me there, too. I'm not sure how much I enjoy someone as injury-riddled as Will Ospreay doing shoot headbutts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's you should probably not be going down that road, kid. Yeah, probably, but uh, any thoughts on this match? Or no? Uh, I don't... Man, it's... I don't, like I try not to be the old man yelling in a cloud about wrestling, um, but it just didn't do a whole lot for me. It's it's something special for certain people, and it's and it's fun. Like I didn't. There's few things in wrestling that I actually hate, and this this match wasn't one of them. Right? This actually, and I'm I gotta say this is I'm not saying it like it's gonna be like you know a solidified all time great thing. Sure. Like it's not like, but when I watched that match and when I saw the reaction out of it, you know that's a match where you could say, all right, that's an instant classic because that's like something that doesn't like cause mm. like that much um, discussion. Like Omega yeah. versus Okada had the same thing, but right after that was done, everybody has to have an opinion on it. And then the views on it <laughs> on YouTube and everywhere else. And to talk about it, where they're talking about it on the Steve Austin show and talk is Jericho. Like, you know, that just doesn't happen that often, especially for a company in Japan. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I wonder. I yeah. wonder if that sort of thing would happen without the internet. You know what I mean? Without this instant gratification of gifts on Twitter. I always. It, it's it's not to necessarily argue against this match in particular. This is just something uh, friends and I have been thinking about a lot recently. But the internet's place in wrestling history is is a really strange thing, and I think this match is one example of it. I don't even think it's one example. It's probably. I think it's probably the example of what, sure. Like gifts in that stuff can doom whether it's positive or negative we saw a negative reaction people had just based on gifts that they didn't totally. see the whole match totally. you know people were burying the match just based on the opening seconds where they're doing the superman poses yeah so whether it's you know positive or negative this is probably the best example of the internet causing a discussion <laughs> on a match the internet ruining wrestling <laughs> essentially where twitter was unbearable <laughs> for like you know five days after this oh it hasn't it hasn't become bearable again <laughs> Never will be. <laughs> so, what's your 48? My 48 is a uh, three-way number one contenders match way back in uh, January the 7th, though it aired later. It's Samoa Joe versus Baron Corbin versus Sami Zayn from NXT 181. Oh, this is kind uh, of a uh, sleep pick here. Uh, I suppose it is. It was one of those things that I remember came up on my radar and I wanted to check out later because I'm a big fan of Samoa Joe and Sami Zayn. And I'll talk about the two of them, specifically one-on-one, later. But uh, right here in this little uh, main event TV match, um, I don't know what it is. I really appreciate the way that TV wrestling is structured. It is generally like smaller and less spectacular and um, not necessarily smarter, but more reserved than a lot of wrestling. And I can appreciate that. And here, like it's a match that highlights the strengths of all these men and leaves you wanting more. Uh, it doesn't like it doesn't. Like, I could watch this match again maybe the next week because they didn't give me my fill here. 
and it has like an inconclusive finish that manages to further the storyline without feeling screwy. And uh, I just, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, I remember the finish and think it was one of the better executed um, non-conclusive finishes that had happened in a while. Totally. Like William Regal comes out and um, and talks to the three of them and says he has to like go back and watch the footage to determine who actually won here. But they don't like. It's not like everyone involved has microphones and they're yelling at each other about it. Like the only audio you get is from the onboard mics on the cameras, and it feels it feels so much more real that way. Yeah. So. My number 47, you haven't said any of these matches yet, so I'm curious to see if you have them, but... Oh, boy. The Revival versus American Alpha from NXT take over at the end. Uh, the Revival versus American Alpha series of matches specifically, I found to be awesome, but didn't make my list. Alright, so this is, I think, the best match they had together, probably. Okay. And it comes right after American Alpha gets their big moment in Dallas winning the titles and the revival mm-hmm. here is motivated and really angry that they're even in this position. So it's American Alpha who I think are the ultimate baby faces for a team like the Revival. Sure. Where the American Alpha is straight up old school. They're the Steiner brothers of the modern era essentially and they're facing the Revival whose whole gimmick is being old school in a new school setting. Mm-hmm. And they're perfect opponents for each other and they revival like they always do great job cutting the ring off isolating chad gable and then J- jason Go- jordan who is hot tag jesus essentially <laughs> <laughs> and uh comes in cleans house amazing drop kicks and their rival always finding a way to switch the momentum in their favor and the finish here at first when i watched it i didn't like the finish because uh it was kind of a deflating and not mm-hmm. in a good sense because the, the American Alpha had just won the titles. But when you go back and watch it with the context that the plans were to have American Alpha move up to the main roster, mm-hmm. it's, kind, it's kind of a necessary evil that led to even better things down the line. Well, better the, things like six months later for American Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Or do you mean better things for the revival specifically? I mean, both teams, actually, if you consider that American Alpha has found success on SmackDown and sure, Revival sure. went on to have another, you know, amazing tag team feud later on in that year. That's what I find interesting is that uh, I don't know too many people who would have put this Alpha series higher. So what was it about this match that made it better than Revival DIY from Brooklyn? Um, I'll, I wanted to get more in depth on it when we talk about Toronto, but I'll say it okay. here is that the Revival versus DIY match from Brooklyn, I like a lot. I don't like it, you know, I don't like um, this American Alpha versus Revival match that much better. Mm-hmm. But my issue is that Tommaso Ciampa in the Brooklyn match is playing face in peril. Ah, uh, yes. And I don't think that's the way it should have gone at all. Especially sure. when the when the feud kind of revolved around Johnny Gargano getting his ass beat. Yeah, totally, totally. So that is the one hang-up I have with that match. Literally, Whereas, the, like the only one. Whereas this, where, I have no yeah. issue with it at all. Gable gets beat down a bunch and Jordan comes up and saves him. Yeah, like that's it. Like, there, like there's nothing else to it where mm-hmm. Tommaso Ciampa, I mean, maybe just some of my issues I have with Ciampa as a worker, but he's Ooh. not He's not a good, you know, he's not really that good selling. Sure, so, sure, totally. And, or, and, and this is just, I don't know, this is like so much more simple, so much more straightforward and exactly. it gets the job done. So that's it there, but, you know, I had the Revival versus DIY Brooklyn match on my list and I have the Toronto match a lot higher, so. Mm-hmm. 
they did it right eventually. <laughs> they got around to it. That was your number 47, right? Yep. Well, my 47 is a uh, another match from the Scenic City Invitational that has popped up a couple times already on this podcast. It is the main event of the first day, Chris Hero versus Kyle Matthews. Now, this is interesting because I remember liking this match, but didn't think it was anything uh, super blow away. Yeah, I, I don't like there's there's been I, I think Hero has certainly had better matches in the year. And uh, if I was able to see more Kyle Matthews matches, I'm sure he would have better matches in the year as well. But it, it was um, it was just a really classic Hero Bully formula match in which he like beats down this guy who is able to string together like little pot shots and reversals to stay in the game. It's, it was more one sided than normal. Um, but I don't know. There's something about Kyle Matthews that I really enjoy. I've seen him on and off for a couple of years now, and he added an interesting twist to a classic hero match. I like the play. I like the way they play with the time limit here. Totally. Yeah. When what, that was good for what would um happen in the second night where they played with it even more. So from mm-hmm. that standpoint, I think they had a little bit more um creative uh consequences to the hero bully formula where hero was taking too long to put him away and then eventually he was able to get the job done. Yeah, you don't you don't get to see that sort of like time limit draw aspect in wrestling too much and like the only like the only match I can think of recently outside of this tournament to do it is like Trevor Lee versus Brad Attitude. Right. So yeah, I like that match. So I'm surprised I made it list surprised I made it a major list, but uh Kind of glad it did it at the same time. Well, I gotta 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 make sure I include a couple of SCI matches or I'll get kicked off wrestling with words. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm looking at my 46 and 45, and I'm actually conflicted on which one to say first. Okay, but I'm gonna go ahead and say my 46 is Barbaro Cavanaria versus Ray Kameda from CMLL July first, uh, the Grand Prix show. I didn't. I, I watched this when it happened, and then I meant to rewatch it for our purposes here, and I didn't, and so I didn't really make my list. All right. So this is their uh, hair versus hair versus hair match. They had mm-hmm. a title match earlier. They had lightning matches, and this one isn't that much different than the um, title match they had, which I was de- debating about debating on putting on my list. But I like the way it starts off with Cavernario going straight after Kameda, diving off the stage, and a whole bunch of wackiness ensues with, <laughs> like, it's pretty much a, I wouldn't say similar to, like, Skrull versus Osprey, and that it's just, like, a whole bunch of crazy sequences. Yeah. But it is a whole bunch of crazy sequences. Even but, for, like, Lucha, it's, it's, yeah. it's more, yeah, it's more spotty than usual. Yeah. And it has the higher stakes with the hair versus hair stip being attached. So obviously the crowd is super into it. And I mean, that's about it there. I think Cavernario is really creative at how he's able to have these kind of matches, whether it's title match or a hair match. He just seems to be one of the more unique workers in the company. And Ray Kameda is a very good guy, but Cavernario just seems to be someone that um, kind of gets wrestling and how to keep mm-hmm. everything fresh in a different way. He quietly had a very good 2016. Oh, I mean, if you pay attention to Lucha, Carvinari is probably like a top 10 guy. Totally, but there's like seven people who pay attention to Lucha. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, what's your 46? My 46 is a match that you may or may not have on this list, but it's a match I know that both of us love. It's the first of the Skillagies. Zack Sabre Jr. versus Jonathan Gresham from Beyond Wrestling's Ripped Off in the Prime of Life. Are you? I don't have this, so you can go ahead. Okay. Um, 
we I mentioned this as the first part of the Skillogy, the three series of matches these two had in July or June and July of 2016. Um, but it was I want to say it was like their fifth match together. But in an interesting twist, all of the matches these two men have had were outside of the United States and ended in draws. And so they come in here and um, they have they tell this interesting story that plays out during the Skillogy in which like Jonathan Gresham has always been a very good technical wrestler and Zack Sabre Jr. has always been a very good technical wrestler. But now they're both like top level talents in the world and one guy is is considered to be the best by many and the other guy is who i think is actually the best and he's coming for the crown and um they they keep it friendly first like in the first couple of minutes before they realize like oh no we're gonna have to turn it up a little bit and it gets a little more malicious and the one-upsmanship turns into violence and it ends in not an inconclusive manner but with a really quick crucifix pin that comes across huge it feels like a huge win for gresham but it continues on into bigger and better things down the road yeah, the thing about this match is that this is sort of their most playful match. Mm-hmm. It's the most exhibition-like. It's the most, you know, for lack of a better term, it's world of sport-like with the grappling and the totally. crazy stuff. Yeah. But then, like you said, it gets um, a little bit more competitive because they also don't want to go to a draw again. Yeah. So, in the ending here is really good because, like you said, Gresham picks up the victory in not a inconclusive way, but it leaves that shred of, huh, that wasn't too uh, definitive. Totally. So, you know, then Zack Sabre Jr. post-match, I'm not sure if you saw this, but post-match, he's, like, not even upset. He's just mm-hmm. politely asking for a rematch, which he yeah. does get. So, it's this, um, it's the first step in the story of Zack Sabre Jr. losing, but he's not at the, he's not at the point where he's, um, starting, like, the fume that he can't mm-hmm. beat this guy. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's really enjoyable stuff. Uh, it features... Uh, the first time I can ever remember seeing this spot, and it has been uh, stolen by dozens of people throughout every, the rest of 2016. Pretty much, every, pretty much every Zach opponent after this. <laughs> yeah, uh, Zach goes and runs for a big European uppercut and leaps into the air as he's doing it, and Gresham uh, grabs him in a backslide out of the air, and it is super crazy and has been done to death. Yeah, I mean, the first time I saw it, I remember losing my mind. I'm, probably, totally. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure you had the same reaction, where it's like, I've never seen this before, ever. <laughs> it was so nutty, but it's been done so much. Yeah. so It's it's the it's the poison runner of technical <laughs> wrestling. That's a, good, that's a good way to put it. All right, so my 45, I'm not sure if you have this match or not, is uh, Kyrie Hojo and Michael Satomura versus Io Shirai and Mayu Iwatani from Stardom, March 21st. Uh, uh, I love these four women, but sadly... They, I think, I don't know, this got really close to my top 100, especially with just how much I've loved Mako Setamora in 2016, but it didn't make it onto my list. Right. This was a Kyrie Hojo, who's, who was pretty much, um, you know, part of that um, Daughters of Stardom group of mm-hmm. Yo and Mayu facing off against them and bringing in the enforcer, Mako Satamura. And uh, it was a really hard-hitting tag match. With the whole bunch of nutty things that happened in it, Kyrie Hojo is a uh, one of my favorite people in all of wrestling. Where when, sure. she, when she gets like so uh, passionate down the stretch that you feel bad for her, you want to see mm-hmm. her win, and she doesn't win here. But it's one of those matches where it kind of proves how good Kyrie can be as one of the best baby faces in wrestling. Because I don't think that anyone that uh, you can feel like more genuine sympathy for than Kyrie Hojo. 
Mm-hmm. She brings a lot of authenticity to her emotion that I find so lacking in a lot of a lot of wrestling these days. Yeah. So and then Io and Mayu, who are a fantastic tag team, they mm-hmm. continue to be great. They had a they had a quietly good 2016 as a tag team. Totally. And this was probably the crown jewel of tag matches they had. And then Hojo and Satomura just a really awesome combination to put together. Mm-hmm. It's a sad it's a it's a sad thing that they're not wrestling each other more these days. And uh, in 2017, will not have the ability to. It's funny because their matches in 2015 kind of play into them teaming with each other now because totally. Michael Satomura beat the ever-living hell out of Kyrie Hojo in 2015. Yeah, she did. <laughs> so it just seems funny that Kyrie Hojo was like, huh, who should I get to face Io and Mayu? Huh, this person that beat the hell out of me last year. I love those sorts of stories of like, hey, you 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 beat me up a whole lot. You want you want to be friends now? <laughs> sure. Those are those are fun. I enjoy this a lot. <laughs> All right. So what's your forty-five? Well, uh, speaking of beating people up, <laughs> I have uh, I think it's my highest ranked BJW match of the year, which is sort of surprising. Um, it's Hideki Suzuki, my boy, uh, teaming up with Yoshihisa Udo versus Yuji Okabayashi and Yasufumi Nakanue from is, their. Is... May 30th show. Is this the shoot? This is the shoot. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, this is a lovely, heated little tag match, which is like literally more a shoot than an actual match. There's metric tons of hate in between Hideki and Nakanue. Um, and it's just, it is so much fun to watch. But hearkening back to like some of, um, some of like the best interpromotional feuds of the 80s and 90s in Pearl, it, it just, two guys who cannot be in the same space as each other without trying to kill each other. And, and even, even in this process, they draw more fire than usual out of Udo and Okabayashi, which is really saying something. And it's short, it's simple, and it's so mean. I love it. I think you, like, you can't even, like, do the violence here any justice. Like, someone uh-huh. actually have to see the match to understand. You, you really, really do have to see it. Like, pe- like when people say this is a shoot, you know, it's kind of get used in a tongue-in-cheek manner. No, uh-huh. this is a fucking shoot. It's one of those matches that makes you think, like, oh, it's there's got to be, like, someone owes somebody money in this case. Yes, and Hideki Suzuki came up, like, I like Suzuki. I liked him when he was in Zero One and all mm-hmm. that stuff, but, uh... Man, that was the most I ever liked Hideki Suzuki in this entire <laughs> run, where he just... It's not even him grappling anymore. He just hates everybody. <laughs> yep, it's good stuff. Yeah, so that's awesome. My number 44 is Tomohiro Ishii versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from the G1. Oh, I actually didn't have this, despite the fact that I did enjoy it a lot. Alright, this is the tale of Ishii being so hungry and desperate and wanting to prove himself Mm -hmm. against the ace of the company and falling short, as opposed to where the Ishii versus Okada match is him actually pulling off the victory. Spoilers, bro. (laughs) But... This, I liked a lot. It got the fire out of Tanahashi, which was on paper. I expected Tanahashi to bring the mean streak, and he definitely did here. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed this dynamic of this angry, mad-at-the-world underdog with a Napoleon complex trying to face Tanahashi, who's at times can be super dismissive and a complete asshole when he wants to be. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't completely dismissive. But he did bring this attitude like, uh, yeah, you're not taking my spot away from me. You know, you're not even remotely close to my level. And the crowd is super into Ishii here. And I think it's a really great uh, story of Ishii coming close, but 
you know, that's it. He doesn't get the victory here. It's a simple story, but it's one that makes for really good matches, especially in the G1, yeah. where things are a lot tighter and shorter and faster and, uh, frankly, meaner than other matches in New Japan. Yeah, like, if this story happened in, like, a Ishii versus a Tanahashi title match, I probably wouldn't have liked it as much. But because in the G1 setting where you have to, you kind of have this um, mindset that anything can happen, Ishii beating Tanahashi wouldn't have been a shocker. But even though he gets close to it, you know, there's still that kind of, like, shred of, uh, you know, a possibility that maybe he could have done it, but, you know, mm-hmm. just, he doesn't get it done that day. But, good stuff. Yeah, what is your 44? My 44 is yet another match from the SCI, and it's one that I think sort of got slept on by a lot of people. It's uh in the second round, it's Anthony Henry versus my boy, Wild Billy Buck. Oh, this is pretty high. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think, I think I liked it a lot because it's so effective. Uh, yeah. Wild Billy Buck especially is just a really enjoyable and really endearing natural babyface. And Henry is like this cocky, good-looking, fast, spotty uh, heel dude. And he goes after the man's leg and cheats to do so and uh, creates just a – I don't know. It's so simple, but it works. And it really gets me going. And it's – even in in the context of this of this tournament, like to say that this might have been my favorite match of the whole thing is surprising. Yeah, it's a simple match. And – if I remember correctly, it played out the fact that uh, Henry versus Leo Rush started off with Henry kicking Leo and then, like, doing, you know, dives to the outside and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it played with that, where Billy Buck knew what Henry was trying to do was coming. So even if it was a, just, a, like, a simple match, there was a subtle psychology to it that played off the first night's events. So, uh, you want to go 43? Sure. Uh, my number 43 might be something of a surprising pick, uh, as in it being this high. It's uh, Heroes Eventually Die versus Sammy Callahan and Zack Super Jr. from a fall of 53. All right, I'm going to check exactly, because you have it hmm, a good amount higher than me, I think. Uh, I don't recall if you brought it up or not. Yeah, I brought it up on the last show. Yeah, I have it at 54. Okay, so shit, we're going to talk about it now. Um What's good here is really great. Like, there's lots of there's lots of fast, spirited, like no nonsense, smash mouth wrestling from Hero and End and Callahan. Lots of good teamwork. Lots of character and fire. Um, but what's bad, and there's quite a bit of bad, I think, is that there's I don't know. Zach shouldn't have been in this match. I think, which is a strange thing, but he fits into this narrative where he can't hang with these strikers in kayfabe, but the way that it plays out in reality makes me think that he shouldn't have been in this. Like everything he doesn't hear is, well, not everything for the most part. Um, for the most part, what he, the things he does here are like meandering and uh, unappealing to me, but the rest of the match is so good that I can't help but include it somewhere on this list. But I don't know. This was, this was disappointing to me on some level after how hyped it was. I don't know. I like Zach's performance here because it was, you know, like you said, he can't hang with these strikers and he didn't even really try striking with them. Every yeah. time he got a burst of offense, it was him trying to grapple. Totally. So from that standpoint, I think it was effective. And he- it was, yeah, it was totally effective. It's just, I'm not sure that I fight it, it. It plays with this weird thing where I'm walking into this match, knowing that I don't like Zach already and seeing a story in which like he can't hang sort of exacerbates that. Right. So I think about it and heroes eventually die, put the 
beating of a lifetime on Zack. Totally. And it's a position where he is the most vulnerable Zack has ever been, especially that weekend where he was pretty much yep. playing the weak link. And yep. he lost three days, three times in three days, yeah. Yeah, lost three days in a row. And Sammy Callahan is pissed because Zack Sabre Jr. can't do anything, so he keeps trying to get in the match. And every time Callahan gets in, he gets the momentum in their favor, and then Zack squanders it, essentially. And mm-hmm. then the finish is brutal as hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hero and, and just smashing his face in. I don't know, I like this a lot. I liked it better on the rewatch than I did initially, I thought. That's, yeah, that might be it, because I haven't, I don't think I've seen it more than the first initial time I watched it. Yeah, on rewatch, I thought Heroes eventually died, but on a really fantastic performance, and the dynamic between um, Callahan and Saber was totally unique, where it did the kind of Parejas and Kray Evilis dynamic. Mm, but sure, yeah. It did that dynamic, and it felt uh, more tense than it usually would, where they don't even want to work together. Is mm. that Callahan has to get in to save Saber because he doesn't want to get knocked out of the tournament? It's funny though that, based on how much it sounded like you enjoyed it, you had it higher than I did, <laughs> or lower. I don't know ever how to say that. You know <laughs> yeah. <what> I, mean? <laughs> well, I don't know. I you know, looking at the list, it feels like it's in the right spot, but yeah, I sure, think, yeah, probably did. Um, my forty-three is Eric Royal versus Nick Richards from CWF Mid Atlantic, and it's the final of the Weaver Cup tournament. I didn't get to see this, despite the fact that I really love Eric Royal. This was the culmination of Nick Richards' uh, story to prove himself as a great wrestler and not just as a deathmatch or ultra-violent guy. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it facing Eric Royal, who is the ace of CWF from Atlantic. He's won the CWF Royal, I mean, Weaver Cup in the past. And it's Richards trying to stand up to this very accomplished guy in the realm of CWF Mid-Atlantic lore. And he winds up proving himself. And he wins it with a technical wrestling hold. And with the one, the Johnny Weaver roll or whatever it's called. And it feels like they masterfully tell the story that they were telling all attorney long of Richards, this scummy dude who used to hang out in back alleys and drink and do death matches is now turning into a legitimate wrestler. And now, with um, how the rest of 2016 played out in 2017, his match with Trevor, with Trevor Lee that uh, should be coming soon, depending on how they, uh, I guess, want to use Release his footage? Title. Yeah, wanna, no. Want to use his title oh, okay. shot. No, want to use his title shot, because they, oh, okay, okay. they, haven't, they haven't even set it up yet. Okay. Which is interesting, because pretty much um, post-Lee versus Wilkins, Richards and Lee haven't interacted at all. So I'm curious to see how they do that because Richards has been pretty much the number two babyface in the company since mm-hmm. then. So, yeah, I like this match a lot and you should probably get around to it soon because it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty straightforward too. And Eric Royal is amazing in this match. He does a, he does a space jam on the apron, <laughs> which is um pretty awesome. But yeah, what's your 42? Uh, my 42 is the finals of CCW's Best of the Best 15, perennially a pretty good tournament in wrestling, I think. And it pits uh, my boys together, Jonathan Gresham and David Starr. Yeah, there was no way this wasn't going to make your list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Does it make your list, though? No, nah, it doesn't. Uh, it's a bummer. Did you actually see this, though? I'm yeah, curious. Yeah, so I liked it. I gave it four stars, I think. 
Okay, okay. Um, this features my number two and number three best wrestlers in America. I don't know that I would consider Star number three in the world. I think Mako is in that spot for me right now, but I'm not sure. Uh, but it it pits two of my favorite guys together in a really smart, hard hitting match with like tons of clever spots and great heel work from Gresham. At one point, uh, Star does his look at it spot in which he just like thrusts his crotch into Gresham's face and Gresham in disgust rolls to the outside and rips a shirt off of a security guard who I think is Wheeler Utah from uh, Dojo Wars uh, <laughs> rips it off his r- rips it off his back so that he can wipe his face um, later after he gives Star a pile driver on the floor he literally just drags the referee into the ring so that he can start the 10 count faster uh, lots of great heel work from Gresham here um, it's sort of a it's sort of a flawed match, though. Like, there's some awkwardness at one point. They do a supremely stupid Davy Richards superplex into another move spot that I hate. And, like, the ending, the finishing stretch is a little too much, like, David Starr playing the role of Shawn Michaels for my liking. But, like, aside from that, there's lots to love about this match, and I really enjoy it. Yeah, I remember enjoying, it, enjoying the match a lot. I didn't rewatch it or anything, but it was very good from what I remember. Can you clarify mm-hmm. in the Michaels... Like David Starr thing that you're talking uh, about? I don't, Gresham, I, I don't remember it at all. Gresham starts to do his leg work, and, and Starr just, um, as he's prone to do sometimes, he doesn't do it often, but when he does it, it's it's pretty bad. Uh, Starr just gets really overly dramatic and emotional with his selling to the point where like it doesn't feel warranted or real. You know what I mean? Right. All right. Just trying to remember because I don't remember like the way that finish played out at all. So Sure, sure. It's, it's not... It's, it's not so detrimental that I don't like the match, but it's like, eh, it's, a, it's a downside. Yeah, I know that you usually uh, not get upset, but it is something that brings down matches where you win. I guess the yeah. selling gets a little hokey. Yeah, I like I like, I like like realness. All right. So, I keep it real, Quentin. <laughs> so my number 42 is a match you may have higher, but it's Leaders of the New School versus JML from WXW's oh. um, Tag League. I'm surprised that I do have it higher. Yeah, all right, so... We'll talk about that later. So my 41 is Kazuchika Okada versus Naomichi Marafuji from New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's King of Pro Wrestling show. Dude, this is all you. <laughs> I know. Um, I like this a lot because it feels like Marafuji came to play here. And uh-huh. he's taking it to Okada, who for the last five years at this point now, has been Ugh. the most protected act in the company. And Marafuji is not dominating him. But he is controlling the match, and Okada looks vulnerable, which mm-hmm. is something that a lot of people um, maybe not clamor for. But it is something that, you know, Okada seems Teflon, and seeing this guy from Noah be the one that give him this much trouble is yeah. kind of satisfying. Marafuji is uh, really slick here. He does the, he does his, um you know, usual kicking offense that annoys some people. But it feels more violent and vicious than it does than it does like the usual times. Mm-hmm. He chops Okada's chest beat red. <laughs> like I feel like you know Okada getting the shit beat out of him would appeal to a lot of people. Totally, totally. And and there's I, I do agree with you on some level. Your your wording is especially especially poignant. Marafuji did come to play in this match, and they do some fun stuff together. I do agree with that. And the thing that takes it over the top here is that. Uh, I haven't really talked about this much on any shows, but I kind of like symbolism in wrestling. And sure. During the finish, Okada is a, uh, he does a tombstone and then he gets up and he looks like he's going to do another tombstone when instead he does an Emerald Flosion. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is um, which was Mr. Haramasai was um, one of his many finishing moves, and to do that on a Noah guy, he's not just a Noah guy who's like the vice president or president of Noah, uh-huh. in front of Noah guys who were in Marufuji's <laughs> corner. Yeah, shows that Okada, even though he'd been a face for all of 2014, wasn't this wasn't you know this clean cut guy. He could still kind of be an asshole, and that was an asshole yeah. move. And then he pushed Marufuji away. <laughs> I don't ever know how to feel about that sort of thing. Like, uh, generally, I don't like it when Gaijin use, like, big Pearl moves. Like, Samojo, a dude I love, is notably uh, pretty silly for doing that sort of thing. But when it's, I mean, it's not even, like, an approach. There was, like, the Noah-New Japan feud earlier in the year, um, but it's not like they were in an interpromotional feud or anything. I don't know. Like, sometimes I'd feel like maybe that was a slap in the face. Sometimes I just think it's a little too cheeky for its own good. I'm not sure how to feel about it. I know. I thought it was disrespectful in the right way, where mm-hmm. if the Noah guys weren't in Marufuji's corner, it wouldn't have felt that way. But the fact that he does it to Marufuji and the Noah yeah. guys are watching it as it happens, yeah, that feels like, okay... Like, in some other, you know, era, that feels like that would have been turned for fighting. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, I like that match a lot. And, you know, that finish, you know, Okada doing an Emerald Flosion is uh, one of those moments that stuck with me the most in 2016. Sure, sure. That was your uh, 41? Yeah. Okay, my 41 is a match that you might have higher. It's Chris Hero versus Zack Sabre Jr. from the Mercury Rising show. Oh, no, I, we did this on the last show. I had that lower than you. Did you? I don't yeah, remember that. I had this at 57. Oh, okay. Um, it's, uh, this was not their first singles match of the year, but it was the first one in a quote-unquote major promotion. Their first one was up in Maine in Limitless Wrestling. And this was, um, this was kind of surprising on rewatch. I rewatched, I think, all of their singles matches in 2016 recently in preparation for this list. And this one was, like, smaller and more reserved than a lot of the later matches. And it's more about, like, the boisterous hero dominating his smaller, less experienced opponent, which, you know, happens a lot, but it, it felt different compared to the stuff they did later in the year. Um, there was a lot of interesting arm work here, which is like something that Zach does a lot, but, but they had one per- spot in particular that I thought was really awesome where um, they were on the floor and Zach stuck hero's arm into a steel chair and stomped on it. And hero like in pain, gets up and like swings at him with his arm still stuck in the chair and Zach ducks and Hero's arm and, and the chair crash into the ring post just hurting him more and I was like oh that's super clever I really enjoyed that and uh it's it's a bit repetitive in the same way that a lot of these matches together are but I don't know there was enough there was enough in it to keep me interested and I like these two I like them together and they made my list yeah the thing about this is that um this takes place in the context of it being the opener to a Mercury Rising show. Yeah, which, which is, is sort of surprising, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting that they go for this sort of epic opener. And uh, I think they pull it off really well where even though they go like almost 30 minutes, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like it uh, drags down everything else that happens on the show. Uh, what does drag down everything that happens on the show, though, is the crowd. I really hated the crowd for this Mania Weekend stringer shows. Did you? Yeah, it's just like... It was a weird combination of not caring about the things that I think they should have cared about and a couple, like, dumb chants and weird foibles like that. Right. Did the crowd bother you, like, during this match in particular or just, like, other things during the week? Um, I think it happened more in other matches. Like, I remember watching Hero versus Yehai recently, and I hated the crowd during that. But this one wasn't as bad. 
All right, so moving on from that, my number 40 is Trevor Lee versus Roy Wilkins from Lan- versus Lance Lude versus Brad Attitude oh. versus John <laughs> Schuyler versus Chet Sterling from CWF Mid-Atlantic. And this was on 2015's Battle Cage show, but this aired on January 13th. I thought you were going to say Trevor versus Roy in the singles match. Oh, and I was no. going to lose my mind. No, 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 no. You are this sadly mistaken. <laughs> this one didn't make my list. You can go ahead. All right. This is the best booked, um, you know, match of its kind that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where this is laid out, you know, long, like a lot of CWF Mid-Atlantic main events seem to turn like, seem to go. But I think they pace it very well and have a lot of storytelling weaved into it that makes this a more rewarding experience than just being a six-way, you know. To like, just to throw it out there, like, you know, Freelance does a uh, six-man scramble every show. Yeah. And it's yeah. usually a fun match, but nothing more. But this, I feel like, does the six-way, but does it in an impactful manner. Yeah, this was definitely one of those matches that, like, opened my eyes to the quality that was that was going on in CWF Mid-Atlantic. Oh, yeah, this was the uh, match that turned everyone on to the um, CWF Mid-Atlantic that works on the um, Wrestling Awards staff. Like, yeah. Dustin Spencer, this was the first show he went to for CWF, then it trickled down, and Trask started watching it, every, like, Lawrence. Everyone started watching CWF based on this match. Mm-hmm. And I was hesitant to watch it because it was really long and it was a six way. But then when I sat down and gave it the time, I was hooked because man, I was like, I can't think of anything, you know, I can't think of any match that has this many people that's been booked, you know, as well as this. Yeah, you don't see multi mans, especially non tag multi mans, go this long. Yeah, and then like every step of the way too, it feels like it picks up instead of a. Uh, feel like it starts to drag on, which, you know, sure. with, with six people, it can start to feel like you're doing it just because, and this one didn't get that. Yeah, CWF, CWF is really good at escalation. Yes, for sure. So, your 40. My 40 is another match that has a lot of escalation, but in a far shorter period of time than that six-way. It is uh, Matt Tremont and Ricky Shane Page in the finals of CZW's Tournament of Death. Now, I'm sure this one made your list, Quentin. <laughs> I hate Ricky Shane Page. Oh no! Why do you hate? Why I, do you hate Ricky? I hate him. I could, I don't know. Is it he, the theme song? He like he annoys me. Like I don't under, like I I really just when I watch him. Yeah. I just don't see any redeemable cause. Like I don't find. Oh no! Maybe he's <laughs> likable. I don't know. I just. It's I, I'm I'm not sure if I'm necessarily like the right person to talk to about it because I've known Ricky for a very long time. He's he's a friend of a friend. Like he's in the same circle of guys that I've run with for years. Like it, I I'm not sure if I could speak too much bad about him but oh, I, I, think I, I, I think i know where you're coming from though yeah i just yeah but go ahead i no, i'm not here to you know rookie shane page is like Ugh. <laughs> uh this was i'm pretty sure this was the best death match of the year though i was really lacking in death match viewing in 2016 but there's like there's a lot of small touches in this match you have tremont coming out to um Wild Thing, as performed by X, which was uh, Asushi Onita's theme, and this was during the period of time in which he was calling out Onita a bunch, and recently Onita has responded, and it's blowing my mind, and I'm really excited for it, but uh, this was the Dark Ages, in which we weren't sure if Onita was ever going to respond. You also have a friend of the podcast, MLJ, drunk on commentary, which is really good. Like it adds, Drunk as shit. Yeah, drunk as shit. Uh Emil's already great. I think he's one of the best commentators in the business, but like being intoxicated adds an interesting wrinkle 
to his commentary that I think you should explore with more. And it's and actually talking talking to him on Twitter about being drunk during the show is what got Emil and I talking for the first time, which was really nice. Um, Ricky, this is like not the culmination, but this is like the biggest step forward in a year long story of Ricky um, trying to make his way onto the CCW roster and like losing roster spot matches and only being brought in part time. And here he enters the tournament uh, that is by rights Matt Tremont's to win because he's won every single deathmatch tournament of the last like two years in U.S. deathmatch wrestling. And he goes to the finals and he beats him in this really big, emotional, bloody bout. Um, it features, it features a really, like a really interesting spot that I think isn't going to get a lot of appreciation simply because it's such a deathmatch spot at one time. Or at one point, these guys like trade blows with light tubes the way that in another match wrestlers would trade like forearms or elbows with like um. s- <laughs> slowly, slowly like escalating their speed and like losing the ability to stay upright. And it leads to this big double down that gets the people up on their feet and changing CZ dub. And it's like the way they do it. It's so emotional and compelling. And it might be like my favorite spot of the entire year. And I really love it. The, fu- the, um, the finish of this match is really interesting because, uh, the commentary team after uh, after that light tube spot, Bricky gets open get, gets busted open pretty badly, and the commentary team has to like go check on him. And there's a lot of paramedics sending to him and whatnot. And so you don't have any commentary for the last say three minutes of this match, in which Matt Tremont drags a scaffold to the ring and sets up a table in the ring with um, a huge <laughs> a huge bundle of light tubes, maybe like twenty or thirty light tubes, and the two men slowly fight up to the top of the scaffold and Ricky DVDs Tremont off the scaffold through the table and the light tubes to win. And the combination of like no commentary and my boy, James Figueroa's awesome camera work that added like a lot to this entire show and specifically this match, like this combination of interesting and very dramatic elements made for something really memorable. And I think it doesn't get its due. All right. I don't even remember if I watched Tournament of Death, but I'll say it, it was. Uh, I'll say really I probably good. didn't. <laughs> sure. All right. So my thirty-nine is from Lucha Underground and is Aztec Warfare Two. I I didn't expect this one at all. You're gonna have to tell me about it. So this one I think is one of the most well booked Rumble type matches I've ever watched. Okay. And. It's mainly because I think they do a really good job telling the story of Matanza being the new dominant force in Lucha Underground, mm-hmm. where for uh, pretty much the entire season one they were teasing him, and then in season two up until this point they were teasing they were teasing him, and then when he actually debuts, it feels like a big deal. And I still stand by the fact that I think this is the best debut of a character I've ever seen in professional wrestling. That's but, yeah, that's probably right. Where he comes out, and the first thing he does is pins the champion at the time, Phoenix. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right out of Paul Heyman, you know, booking the champion <laughs> to lose first type of thing. <laughs> sure. And that, I think, was very well done and established him immediately. Yeah. And then from that point on, he goes on to destroy everyone else in the match, like, pinning and eliminating, like, Ten nine people. It's yeah, it's something nuts. And then, go, and then it comes down to him and Rey Mysterio, 
and these two have this awesome encounter here mm-hmm. and it culminates with Matanza catching Rey Mysterio and uh he had him in a he had him in a power bomb first mm. and then he um threw him in the air caught him and then turned it into the uh I forgot what he calls it in Lucha Underground but outside Wrath of, Lucha of the Under- Gods I think yeah Wrath of the Gods outside of Lucha Underground he calls it the Tour of the Islands which is the reverse uh spinning I it's the wrong slam. it's yeah it's like a wrong way momentum power slam yeah and it looks absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. One of the spots where, you know, there's like, there were things that happened that year that maybe overshadowed it, but still one of the most impressive feats of strength I've got to recall in wrestling because mm-hmm. Matanza tosses this man. And mm-hmm. granted, Rey Mysterio is small, but still, that's a grown man. Yeah, and he's he's been putting on weight in his old age, but <laughs> he, he, he's been getting pretty big. Sure, sure. <laughs> it is very weight. impressive. In yeah, and everything about the Matanza debut was absolutely perfect to me. And I, what, what were you saying? I think I know the secret reason why you love this match though so much because what? it features Joey Ryan getting his ass kicked. <laughs> oh, Joey Ryan, um, handcuffing himself to uh, the guardrail was actually a uh, pretty good story. That was yeah, it's a good character moment. Thing. Yeah, but yeah, this was actually and besides Matanza, I thought the entire thing up to it was well booked they had callbacks to the first aztec warfare with who was coming mm-hmm. out at what number and mm-hmm. such and such and puma and mundo having face-offs and phoenix and puma having interactions um they were continuing the feud between drago and jack evans there was a whole bunch of stuff going on here but the overlying thing was matanza coming out and wrecking shit and it's one of the best debuts if not the best debut of a character wrestling history so. it's very good stuff that was your number uh, 39, correct? Yeah, 39. Okay, my 39 also features two men, uh, one of whom was in the match. I don't... Th- Pentagon wasn't in it. But it's uh, Heroes Eventually Die versus Pentagon Jr. in Phoenix from PWG's Battle of Los Angeles Day 2. I didn't make, it didn't make my list, but this is a cool-ass match. Well, that's an interesting thing. But uh, you are totally correct in saying that it's a cool-ass match. Um you know, sometimes when you just have four guys with big personalities and tons of skill just go at it and do dumb spots in front of a drunk crowd, um, it makes for a very lovely viewing experience. You know, like, there's not, um, I didn't, like, think, you know, you would never think about this, but after that I was like, huh, I really want a Tommy Yen versus Pentagon Jr. match. Sure, just a one-on-one? Yeah, just because, like, these two have, like, such a big and violent auras to them. Mm-hmm. That when these two are in the ring, like you've already seen Hero versus Pentagon, so you already know how that goes. But N versus Pentagon was like, ooh, I wonder how this would happen. Well, you can blame Paul for never being able to see that. <laughs> All hail indeed. All right, so you may have this match higher than me, but for 38, I have Rush versus LA Park from Elite. I have this a hell of a lot higher. All right. So my 37 is Sammy. Oh, Zane. well, I have, to talk, I have to talk about my 38, bro. Well, okay. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't want me all right fine uh my number 38 is a really fun uh little delightful grapple match between jack gallagher and johnny kidd from progress is chapter 27 all right there's another surprising pick because i like this and then it was uh-huh. like, all right it's um i really i really liked these two in 2016 and having a fun little world of sports style technical match here full of comedy full of personality full of um pantomime which is something that doesn't show up enough in 
in wrestling, I think. Just, like, fun gesticulations. Um, having all of that on top of, like, super airtight, sound, quality technical wrestling, it's it's so much fun. Kid looks like an all-time great here, and to be fair, he's not necessarily too far removed from that. And Gallagher, Gallagher does this really interesting thing where, like, he looks really great while being completely outclassed by this like legend of the sport and you know both men's both men play their roles expertly and it's it's a ton of fun to watch yeah i really like the interactions of johnny kidd like being presented as this legend of the british scene going up against the guy that kind of embodies that era of british wrestling more Mm -hmm. more than anyone that's wrestling currently yeah so that's a cool dynamic that they had there and a reward sport style match that may not be everybody's bag. I enjoyed mm-hmm. that style, so it was really neat to see those two who are very good practic- practitioners of that uh, style, you know, going at it and happening on a progress show, which is a uh, pretty unique too. Yeah, it didn't it didn't feel super out of place on progress. And I probably have to give credit to the progress crowd there too because they actually did a good job, you know, not <laughs> doing like token wrestling things. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciated that crowd, too. We'll return after these messages. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Voice of Ring of Honors, Kevin Kelly here. I just want to make sure you're all subscribed to all of our great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. Now, it's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search for and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, Place to Be Nation pop feed, Pro Wrestling Only feed, and of course, the Kevin Kelly Show feed, which includes the full archives of my podcast. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And of course, as always, enjoy all the great action of Ring of Honor Wrestling and everything presented to you on PlaceToBeNation.com. Nation's JT Rizzero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceTomination.com, and we offer them to you across two great feeds. On the PlaceTomination Wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast with our famous Vintage Raw pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with the smash hit clotheslines and headlines our steady veteran main event, and the beloved monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on all pro wrestling super shows. We live wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse, the always contentious Dangerous Alliance podcast, and Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. On our very popular Place of Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, NBA Team, Lucha Undead, Geek and Sassy, and a veritable podcast heaven for comic fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both of those feeds on iTunes and rate and leave feedback for us as well. All of these shows plus others available at PlaceToBeNation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceToBeNation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault refresh ebooks via the links on the right-hand side of our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Rock, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The P
PW PTBN feed has changed its name, now known simply as Pro Wrestling Only, so it should be easier to find and indeed to say. All of your favourite shows are still here, including Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Teams Back Again, This Week in Wrestling, and many, many more, including our full archives of tremendous content. So make sure you subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only feed today. Now back to the show. On Nick. Or uh, I so rudely interrupted you, you were going to talk about your number 37. <laughs> My 37 is Sami Zayn versus Kevin Owens from Battleground. I, it's strange. I really like this series of matches they had in 2016, but they didn't make my list. This match was their the blow-off to the latest incarnation of their feud. Mm-hmm. And it had great action, like these matches between each, like the matches between them, these two tend to. But the ending here is another one of those endings where symbolism kind of takes it over the top for me. Totally. And it's Sami Zayn going in for his Aluva kick. And he hits it, and then he kind of catches Kevin Owens while Owens is falling to the ground. Yeah. And he's is super melodramatic and, you know, WWE, you know, zooming in on Sammy's face. If people don't like it, I totally get it because it is a overly dramatic thing. Because yeah. I, kinda, I like that stuff, and because Sami Zayn is so good at conveying emotion through facial expressions, he's, like, looking at Owens like, uh, you're a piece of shit, but you used to be my friend. So there's a kinda, lot there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot going into that look. Yeah, so you're like wondering if he's gonna put him down gently and then pin him, if he's gonna, you know, let him die peacefully, I guess. But then mm-hmm. no. He puts him back in the corner, it runs back, and then they do the same shot they did from the same from the from the Sami Zayn Adrian Neville match from twenty fourteen. Ah, yes. Where in the corner Sami Zayn is like looking at him and he closes his eyes and like you know, he's like cleansing himself of all the doubt and anger and he just rushes in and kicks Owens' head off one more time to get the win. Yeah. So, yeah. This, I've been, it, it's interesting. I've been meaning to write about this match for a very long time for wrestling with words piece and because of like time sensitive pieces I wasn't able to and I think I'm going to in 2017. It's a really interesting end I guess to their feud even though they had TV matches after this but this was <laughs> yes. kind of like this Nothing ever of, ends. <laughs> yeah, but this was kind of the not like if it actually ended here, and mm-hmm. they kind of and people were thinking they were going to go to separate brands. Yeah, and I think it was kind of a stupid decision to keep them on the same brand, but whatever. But if sure. the feud ended there and they went to separate brands, this probably would be higher. But the but the way everything played out after kind of drags it down because it's like you know it was all for nothing in a way, but it's still yeah. a fantastic match. It's unsurprising that WWE booking tends to drag things down. <laughs> Who thought? Well, my number 37, keeping in line with this uh, list of fun technical matches that I've been talking about, I've got uh, your favorite wrestler in the world, Quentin, Mike Quackenbush, taking on Drew Gulak at Shakar's Supremacy Show. I didn't watch this match. I'd have nothing, I have nothing to say. So, <laughs> Well, for... Um, for a big Chikara fan like me, this match is really something special. Though I'm, I, I'm sure that like non-Chikara fans would appreciate something like this too, because it's really straightforward, effective, occasionally spectacular technical wrestling between two like 
true masters of the craft. There's there's a few moments in this that are like <laughs> straight up breathtaking. Like they do they do one spot in particular that I have never seen before and is so like outside of the realm of what I understood to be possible that it just blew my mind. Um, and outside of that, it's it, it's not nearly as good, but it's it's very enjoyable and it's very sentimental for um, someone like me who's been watching Drew Gulak and Mike Quackenbush for such a long time. And to see them have this, you know, one last match is uh, it's really something nice. Like, I'm not going to shit on it, but you know how I feel about Mike Quackenbush. You know how I, feel I actually, I, I don't. I just have a vague understanding that you don't like him. I feel like I've explained this before. <laughs> I'm not sure that you have. My problem with Mike Quackenbush is that I understand and I see that he is a student of the game. Uh-huh. He's a guy that clearly likes Lucha, clearly likes World of Sport. I don't think like is the right word. It's a lot stronger than clearly that. Clearly apes off of Lucha and World of Sport. Uh-huh. But for some reason, even though there's other guys that kind of do that, like Hero is obviously very sure, influenced yeah, yeah. by everything. Hero, it feels genuine. Mike Quackenbush literally feels like he just took everything he's ever watched from Lucha and um, World of Sport and huh. just does it. I don't ever feel like Mike Quackenbush <laughs> is genuine when he wrestles. Do you um, do you think part of that is his personality? Well, yeah, because he has, like, to me, he's, like, just a dude who has a creepy stare. He yeah. has yeah. no personality for me when I watch him. <laughs> but maybe he does in some other matches I haven't watched. Like, maybe that sure, Eddie sure. Kingston versus Quackenbush match that you like uh. If you but, haven't seen that, you should definitely watch it. Quentin. Yeah, like I planned on it, but I have this mental block with Quackenbush matches where mm. his face irritates me. He's certainly someone who can rub people the wrong way, and even people who like him, myself included, uh, can be turned off by him sometimes. He's um, there's a lot going on there. He's he's not a uh, I don't even know. He's a complicated guy. And this is this isn't even counting the business, you know. Sure. Stuff, totally. uh, you know, that hearing about, like hearing about backstage stuff with him. So it's like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So it was like, yeah. But what, what match was that for you? 37? That was my 37. All right. So you may have this match higher than me. It's Dragon Lee versus Kamatachi from Fantastic Mania. I do have this higher. So we'll talk about it in a bit. And we'll talk about a match you brought up earlier, which is my number 36. It's the Leaders of the New School versus JML in the right. finals of WXW's World Tag League. All right. Let's do this because I'm excited for this one. Um,. So this is like four wildly different wrestlers of whom I have uh, incredibly different opinions coming together to create a match that I feel is so much greater than the sum of its parts. Like you have my boy David Starr, who's one of my favorite guys in the scene today. And while he's usually like subtle and really enjoyable to watch, he can, he can, as I mentioned earlier, he can succumb to like overacting and unrealistic drama. And he does that to some degree here. Um, Then you have Zach Super Jr. Like, World-class talent, great technical wrestler who I find to be sort of inconsistent and lacking in some of the subtlety that I find to be so um, important in wrestling. And speaking of a lack of subtlety, we have Skrull, who is a fabulous entertainer, but he relies heavily on a shtick that makes him a, a hell of a lot of money, but doesn't necessarily make for great art, I think. And you have Shane Strickland, who is an awesome high flyer who has recently become very great after many years of being not good. And uh, outside of like his great high flying matches, I'm not sure if he brings a lot. And so you have these four guys who do this like really cliched and sort of typical indie big main event tag team match that comes together 
to create something that I love, and it doesn't make any sense. I think the thing about this match is it also has a storytelling, which some of the big uh, indie matches you may be talking about totally. don't have as much of, where throughout the tournament going on that weekend, you know, leaders of the new school have been around for almost nine or ten years at this point. Mm-hmm. But they were teaming when they were like literally, you know, teenagers or early 20s yeah. together. So they were, you know, knowing each other and best friends before Zach was the technical wizard and before Marty was was the villain. So this is more Marty as the villain with Zach, who's, you know, this suave gentleman who's like this uh, dude that pretty much embodies what British wrestling is supposed to be, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way. So it's two different personalities, but guys that are still meant to be friends. Mm-hmm. And Marty is trying to get Zach to go along with his uh, heel antics, and yeah. Zach would reluctantly agree. But in this match, he Zach, slowly gets into it. Not even slowly. He, I don't know what Dave. I don't know what happens, but David Starr and Zach Saber Jr. have some super heated interactions. <laughs> yeah, there's like, like Zach Saber Jr. is pissed. <laughs> I remember at one point there's like an eye poke, like um. I think I think Skrull pokes Strickland in the eye, and Star's like, "Hey, what, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing?" And like a minute later, Zach turns around and pokes Star in the eye, and it's and it's little things like that. And later on, after a big, I don't remember what the near fall was, but after a near fall that probably should have won the match, Strickland kicks out, and Star or not Star Saber like morphs into such a malicious little monster, beating him down, and it's it's really something special. This I I would say like this match does so much more for um, Saber's like slow heel turn in Rev Pro than any Rev Pro match has oh, done. Yeah, definitely. And if no one like knows what it means, um, spoiler it if, you, if you've never seen the match and you want to see it, you can skip this. But pretty much, after a near fall, Marty's girl goes out and gets the WXW tag title, or one of them. Mm-hmm. And he looks like he's going to go hit one of JML, and then Star, I mean, Saber takes the title, it looks like he's going to, like, reprimand Marty for doing this thing and that they should win straight up. And then Sabre just turns around and clocks David Starr with the title belt. Yep. And it is so unexpected because I've talked about this when I wrote of Leaders and Wizards, but because Zack is who he is, because Zack, for the last few years, has been this gentleman, sportsman, who does the right thing, chivalrous, and all, he's like a well-mannered guy, but for some reason he got so consumed with anger and venom and desperation that he did something totally out of his character and for me personally i love when people do things out of character because they got put in a position where they need to do so uh uh-huh. and that's what it was here and leaders of the new school wound up losing the match and then after the match marty's girl who's the villain is shaking hands with jml and then zach saber jr who again is the sportsman of the two <laughs> just leaves without shaking hands yeah, and it shows you that Zach is kind of a bitter crybaby when he doesn't get his way. Oh, totally. That's like he's he's got a real good Bret Hart thing going on. And I enjoy that quite a bit. So, yeah, I love this match, and I'm surprised you had a higher. Yeah, it's it shouldn't work for someone like me. Like these individual elements don't come together to create an enjoyable match on paper, but it is so fun to watch. I really, really. It took me by surprise. Yeah. So. My 35 is a match that you mentioned earlier, which surprised me that you that you even have on your list. But it's Kazuchika Okada versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from Wrestle Kingdom 11. This is, um... 
shit, where did, I guess I don't have my notes up for this because we talked about it so much earlier. Um, you brought up something earlier. You brought up two things earlier that I want to point out here. Um, New Japan is not, not New Japan. Uh, uh, symbolism in wrestling is very important yeah. and it's a very, it's a very good tool that sometimes it's like a little over the top and I think it's over the top here in this match, but it's something that creates uh, fun drama and memorable moments. And on top of that, uh, it's important to revisit and rewatch matches sometimes because when this first happened and I first watched it live and I first uh, reviewed it for my blog, hated this match, hated, hated, hated this match. That's I thought not, that's it was not surprising. It's, it was the embodiment of everything that I hated about the new Japan main event style, which in hindsight, has only gotten so much worse in the year since. Um, but on rewatching it, like I picked up on more things, or maybe I cooled off on like my hatred of that, or I don't know what it is. I think this match is flawed, but I enjoyed it more than I used to. Now, a question about like your hatred of it: Does it come from the fact that you just generally don't care about the Okada versus Tanahashi feud? Oh no, 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 no! I think. Uh, Maybe I don't anymore, but I don't necessarily have a whole lot of hatred for that. Part of it comes from, uh, like, Okada's selling in this match, which is, like, wildly inconsistent from, like, minute to minute. And it, it just grates heavily on me that in – I don't know. Like, I think I think back to a couple of years ago with, like, the Tanahashi versus Suzuki matches that were not perfect, but, like, good examples of selling in main event matches that made things dramatic uh, and – I think about this and it's like such a step backwards. It, it was things like that. It was things like there's the very famous moment where Tanahashi blocks a Rainmaker attempt, but Okada like keeps the wrist hold on Tanahashi and it's what gives him the advantage he needs to pull him back in for the Rainmaker to win the match. And like that is a really awesome bit of symbolism, but it's so harped on here. Like, like the uh, the commentary goes nuts pointing it out they zoom in on it with the camera red shoes is literally pointing at it and it's like it's so it's so over the top and if it was more subtle i would have appreciated it so much more but like it's a cool moment and i can still enjoy it so with all that being said i mean before i talk about it i guess like why did it make your list then uh, i just i don't know it was one of those things that like i rewatched it and i was like i don't hate this as much as it did and, like, I still appreciate Tanahashi a whole lot, um, more than I used to, actually. When I first got into New Japan, I, I hated Tanahashi, but Okada has sort of eclipsed him <laughs> in that hatred, and I appreciate the ace a whole lot more these days. And aside from, like, the bad selling and the over-the-top antics with that symbolism, uh, there's a lot of cool symbolism and a lot of cool action in this. The thing about this is that even as someone that has, you know, loves the Okada versus Tanahashi feud mm -hmm. and the escalation in it, I didn't even know how I felt about this match because this is the first time where it truly felt like what they did in the first half meant meant nothing. Totally. Like, this is the only time where it hit me that way. Where any other Okada vs. Tanahashi match, I've never felt that. Yeah. But for this one, it truly felt pointless. I haven't I haven't watched a lot of those matches in a while, and I think I'm going to rewatch them soon for an article. Um, but yeah, I don't remember as much meandering in their, their other matches. Yeah, and... The thing that always bugs me about when we do, you know, Okada versus Tanahashi now, uh -huh. is that they focus on the leg, which uh -huh. is like, like, I think their best matches were when Tanahashi was focusing on Okada's arm. So, that's the thing that sort of like kind of bugs me there, 
And totally. for the longest time, I didn't know how I felt about this match. How I felt about this match, like I didn't even know if it'd make my top 100 at one point. Yeah. And ultimately, when I rewatched, I was like, "All right, they play off a lot of things that happen in a feud. They do callbacks. Mm-hmm. They do things that I like, which is callbacks and symbolism. Mm-hmm. So in some way, I still really like this match. But I had to put it in a place where I realized that it is very flawed. It may be one of the mm-hmm. more flawed matches they've had together. So." That's why I wound up at 35, but you mentioned the holding of the wrist and the camera zooming in and everyone going nuts for it. I like it. That stuff doesn't bother me. Sure. So when Okada, you know, when Tanahashi slaps Okada and he slaps the ever-living shit out of him. <laughs> yes, he does. And they just fall to the, and just collapse to the ground. I'm totally fine with just like zooming in, zooming in on the hand and then Okada in his facial expressions like, no, you're not doing this to me again. You're not taking my moment mm-hmm. away from me. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you remember Wrestle Kingdom 9, mm-hmm. Okada pretty much had his coronation stolen from him. He yeah. lost He lost to Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom 7. Like, you know, this was finally his time to put Tanahashi away on the big at the stage. Dome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he does it. He's not going to let the moment slip away from him. So I appreciated that. It's, it's, I mean, it's good stuff. It's just like, I guess, <laughs> I guess, uh, I prefer my wrestling to have less hand-holding than the hand-holding they did with that wrist lock. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Said, again, I, at one point, didn't even think it would make my list. and I'm Which saying, is surprising. That's surprising to me. Yeah, like, and I'm on record as loving that series of matches. Mm-hmm. And it, anno- it really, really annoyed me. Even someone like me, who likes New Japan. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, yeah, let's, that was my 35. Did you do your 35 yet? Uh, yes, yeah, so my 35 was, I think, a match that you brought up earlier. It's uh, Matt Riddle and Tracy Williams in the final of the style battle at Evolve 55. And I had that at 71. Okay, yeah. Um, this match to me is like, it's the epitome of the catch point philosophy. It's bettering yourself through honest competition. It's a, uh, it's a very aggressive match with either of these men, like, willing to back down, um, in what is, like, otherwise a pretty friendly contest between teammates. And it makes for, like, a really thrilling match that highlights uh, the numerous differences between these guys who are, like, ostensibly similar. Like, they're both technical wrestlers and grapple-oriented wrestlers and strike-oriented wrestlers, but they have a lot of differences between them. Um, Hot Sauce goes out of his comfort zone a little bit, does a little more high-flying than he's known for under this gimmick, and it has a really awesome finishing sequence that I enjoy. I think on top of everything that you said... This was the this was kind of the um, breakout match I'd say for both guys. Totally. Where for the longest time, well, not longest time, up until like the few you know months that he had been around, I liked Matt Riddle, but I didn't think he was anything special. Mm-hmm. And then this match happens, and everyone's like, "Holy shit, this guy is really good." Yeah. Like that match was like what sold me on the fact that Matt Riddle needs to be a babyface. Because mm-hmm. up until that entire point, he had been a heel, been like a cocky heel. And and he's still one, really cocky at this point. Yeah, and then after that match, you're just like, man, that guy has babyface written all over him. Yeah. And it's his bumping, it's his selling, guy's tremendous facial expressions, which he was, what, less than, what, six or seven months into wrestling at that point? I want to say his year started in May, so yeah, around then. Yeah, so, God, that dude was turning in that kind of performance that early into the year. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's kind of blowing me away, even thinking about it now. So, 
Yeah, I love that match. So I'm glad it's, you have it so high. It's real good stuff. Like at um, I mean, I tend to watch wrestling late. Like I don't get around to things until months after the fact. But at one point, this was my match of the year early on. All right. So moving on. My 34, you haven't named this yet, so maybe you have it higher, but Tamatachi versus Maximo Sexy from CMLL, January oh. 1st. Uh, no, I didn't watch this. This was, or not, not that I didn't watch this. This was actually the first match I watched in 2016. Uh, I did not have this on my list. All right, so this is the match where it feels like Tamatachi proved that he's a guy that's much more than the Dragon Lee series. Mm-hmm. He's a guy that solidified the fact that he's a tremendous heel that can work on a limb and stay on it and stay vicious and have great character work. And he's succeeding in another big match setting where he did really well in that mask versus mask match. Mm-hmm. And then again, in an Apoistus match, hair versus hair, he kills it again. And Maximo Saxi is such a lovable baby face. He gets, <laughs> you know, so. he's one of the only baby faces that gets consistently cheered in Arena Mexico. And he has great selling, and it's one of Maximo's best performances. Maybe not his absolute best, but yeah. it's a great job from him. A lot of drama here. Sometimes the CMLO camera cuts get get a little excessive when they're sure. doing it during matches. But this time it felt like it worked because they're cutting to the now infamous Kamatachi fan. And uh, it feels like her reactions to the match actually add to it, which is weird to say. Yeah. So. It's uh, that's that's an interesting thing. She's she's an interesting wrinkle to those matches. Uh, really, a really lovable person too. A couple of my friends got to meet her at Bola, and she seems really cool. Um, I don't think I love this match a lot because I loved Kamaitachi's hair, and I hated that he had to lose it for a little while. It was it was insane is that he grew grew his hair back so fast. So yeah, so quickly. Like it's it's as long as it was then. Now, yeah, a year later. That's crazy. And, I think the thing is that, um, you know, usually the hair versus hair matches have a lot of emotion in the post-match. Uh-huh. And really, because Kamatachi is a foreigner that everyone knows is on loan, yeah, there aren't that many people that are emotional or crying in the crowd, but the ones that are really get to you. Like, there's like, like a, there's like a couple that are crying in the crowd totally when Kamatachi loses. And it's like, I, they're like the only ones that are sad. <laughs> I think part of it, too, is maybe like who, Max, who Maximo is. Like, I'm not, I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I'm not sure if, like, that many people would get that emotional about an Exotico losing his hair, you know? I don't know, because he's one of the more liked baby faces on the roster. So It's, it's like, true. It's but, true. But he also lost his hair to um, Rush last yeah. year, and yeah. I didn't see people, you know, crying yeah, it was, about it. It didn't light the world on fire, yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know, maybe. But what's your 34? My 34 was a match that totally took me by surprise. It's Zack Sabre Jr. taking on ACH in the, I think, semifinals of the AAW Gym Lineup Memorial Tournament. All right. Um, this is, I, I say it took me by surprise because these guys generally have uh, a shtick or a persona or, like, a mindset that they stick to, and this was so different from that like this is two guys who are frustrated and exhausted and who take their aggressions out on each other making for like a really eye-opening brutal little match that's sort of technical and sort of strike based and there's a lot going on in it um it's it's full of hate it's full of like really brutal head drops like there's a brain buster at one point that like i cannot describe any other way than just hellacious and uh, I really enjoy it. Like, the finishing stretch is really cool, too, with um, 
with ACH trying to muscle up Zach for that brain buster, and he goes up for the 450, and Zach avoids it, gets his knees up, and locks him in a, um, uh, what's it called? The triangle arm bar after working on ACH's arm the whole time. And ACH tries to muscle him up again like he did for that brain buster, but he just can't do it, and he has to tap out because of all the all the pressure that he's adding to his arm trying to lift the man up. And it I it took me completely by surprise, came out of the blue, and I really loved it. Something I thought about when you were um, talking about this match is that now that Chris Hero is going to NXT, and we talked about how much Chris Hero did the bully formula in 2016. Uh-huh. Do you think that 2017 may see the emergence of the Zack Sabre Jr. bully formula? Uh, yes and no. I think it will in Europe, but not in the States, because I don't think he's going to be a heel in the U.S. So my 33 is, is a match I know you have higher, but it's Bailey versus Asuka from NXT Brooklyn. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually surprised this made your list, because I don't think anyone else loved it as much as I did. And I thought that extended to the degree that, like, it wouldn't make anybody's list. Um, but I'm pleasantly surprised. The thing about the Bailey versus Asuka matches in general is that they happen right after stuff people called Match of the Year contenders. Totally. So they get forgotten. Like, in Dallas, they went right after Nakamura versus Zayn. And here, they went right after the tag title match. Mm-hmm. So they kind of got an unfair shake both times. Yeah, as but, is often the case with women's matches. So, but I think this one was actually... Something that we need to talk about a lot because there was some stuff. People probably, <laughs> there was something people probably missed here. Yeah, yeah, and we'll definitely go in depth about it later on. So, uh, my number thirty-three then was a delightful little sprint between two guys I like a whole lot. It's Leo Rush and John Silver from Beyond Wrestling's By Popular Demand. All right, this is probably a forgotten match that happened this year, but this was really fun. It's like. <laughs> these are two guys who are great at fast spirited mean little matches throwing their all against each other and i really i really love it jonathan gresham and steve the turtle wiener are on commentary here which is <laughs> which is also delightful uh and silver um being you know the big crash holly type that we've talked about thinks he's a whole lot bigger than he is and rush is one of the few opponents he's had that is actually considerably smaller than him and he doesn't take too kindly when the kid starts to do his high flying specifically saying quote i don't want any of that fucking flippy shit end quote (laughs) and uh really lays it into him to with a couple like really vicious spots and i love it all right so my number 32 is a match that happened on what seemingly may be a throwaway korokin show Uh but it's berserk Versus Yamato, Naruki Doi, Dragon Kid, and Katoka from Dragon Gate. Which, what's the date on this one? November 10th. It was recently. I know I watched this, but I don't think I remember a thing about it, and it didn't make my list. So, like I said, you know, people make it say this like a throwaway, you know, DG main event. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But the thing about this is that it features Katoka having the performance of his life. Mm-hmm, totally. You no, know, he goes out there and he's straight, he's taking it to everyone in Berserk. He's not the same uh, chicken shit heel, undeserving champ character he was. Yeah. He's now kind of this scorned pest that won't go away. And it works well in the face character, which is weird to say. Yeah. Like, he's still the same Katoka. He does the bleh and all that stuff. But he's, <laughs> <laughs> like, he's still the same guy. But for some reason, the gimmick works as a, works as a face. And you can't describe why it does. Uh-huh. And 
Berserk here is a complete, you know, group of assholes. Shingo, Chihawk, and Lindemann are destroying Katoka. Yeah. And I like the finish here a lot because it focuses on Katoka, but you would think, you know, either Shingo or T-Hawk will finish him off since they're the two top guys in the stable. Mm-hmm. But no, it's Lindemann. Lindemann, yeah. who's kind of Katoka's contemporary and, uh, you know, he's in that same group of young guys. It's L. Lindemann yeah. that finishes him off instead. And I like that a lot. And it's a fantastic match with Yamato and Doi. We'll be able to talk about them and their interactions. So it's really great stuff that has a lot of callbacks to past stable affiliations and mm-hmm. has a lot of hatred in it and super great stuff. I thought one of the, uh, one of the things that I like a lot about this Verser Kiel reign is the callbacks specifically with people who used to be in the stable and have since left. And there's a lot of that in this match with Yamato, Naruki Doi and Kotaka. Yeah, definitely. And then Dragon Kid, he doesn't do, he doesn't do a whole lot in this match. <laughs> sure. No, granted because he killed himself in that, uh, tag match at Gate of Destiny. Yeah. So he kinda got some equity there, didn't have to do much. But he whatever he what he does do stuff, it is pretty spectacular and said a great match that will probably get left off list because it happened on a random Corrigan show. Sure. So do you want to give me your thirty two? My thirty two is uh I think you brought it up earlier. If not, I know I brought it up in talking about another match. It's uh Donovan Dijak taking on Brian Fury in Brian Fury's final singles match in Beyond Wrestling. It was Beyond Wrestling's overnight sensation main event. I had this at number ninety, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um this is um when I first watched it, I described it as some pro wrestling as pro wrestling. Like this is, it's the sort of storytelling. It's the sort of narrative that you can only find in the squared circle. It's a, it's a local legend, like this, this monumentally important figure to a particular scene in a particular region going out on his own terms against um, his greatest trainee, his greatest creation, I suppose you could say Uh, this monster of a man in Donovan Dijak, who, for all intents and purposes, like kind of hates the guy who, who brought him up in the business. And it's, um, it's this really, I talked, we talked about it earlier with like drama and wrestling and it's this big drama, uh, dramatic over the top emotional match that it, it shouldn't work. But due to like, due to the authenticity of the situation with Brian Fury retiring and with my like personal connection to this particular scene and these particular guys, I don't know. Like I really buy into the emotions here. Um, and it's certainly, it's certainly helped by the fact that like a personal friend of mine is on commentary, trying his hardest not to cry while calling this match. And it's, it's, um, it's something I buy into a lot despite being super goofy. And I really enjoy it. Something interesting about this match is that during the course of it, it's kind of like an even kill match with like Dijak being respectful of his mentor. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end is when a, when the disrespect comes out. He just loses his mind at one point. Yeah, just randomly he just starts bad mouthing him, saying, "I'm doing all the things you could never do. You're living through me. I'm going to bury you." Yeah, literally, saying, I'm he, going to bury you. He literally screams in his face, "Now you die!" At one <laughs> point, and it's and it's like it's so goofy, but I I buy into it so much, you know. Yeah, I love it, and it's like a great way for Brian Fury to you know. Who's a guy who probably never got his due to go out, you know, and sure. beyond where they were ones that, you know, even though they were in the Northeast, they never really booked Brian Fury for, you know, for a few years. And mm-hmm. when he got his chances, he did well there. 
Yeah, it's I wouldn't I wouldn't know who Brian Fury was probably without a promotion like Beyond, and it's it's I'm glad that I got to know him. Right. So my thirty one is Zack Saber Jr. versus Drew Gulak from Evolve seventy three. Oh, interesting. I wait. Did I? I think I brought it up earlier. Yeah, you did. You have it on your list. Okay, I wasn't sure if I'd actually done that, so okay, we're going to talk about it now. <laughs> All right, so this match is one of the more unique things that happened this year because uh-huh. it's two guys like Gulak and Saber who can get nasty and like stiff with strikes if they want to. Uh-huh. But during this entire match, there's none of that. It's literally just grappling the entire match, and it goes, what, like 20-something minutes? Uh, 25, I think. I watched it actually just before we recorded this. Yeah, and they go like 25 minutes and it's just straight up grappling. Now, granted, it's some really nasty grappling <laughs> at times. Some of it is, yes. And I think for the fact that they use all of that time to not even throwing strikes mm-hmm. or throwing suplexes or anything, it's just dedicated to the grappling, is very interesting and something that's one of the better feats in wrestling this year because it happened in a mainstream wrestling promotion. Mm-hmm. And I'm appreciative of the fact that they sort of they sort of took a risk with a match like that even though be even though evolve does matches yeah. of, that, of that style even in the same thatcher match they will still you know throw some strikes sure in this match there was none at all and it, it came across really well this joppa maryland crowd was super into it were you at this show no i was actually busy and i couldn't go to that show okay i just don't remember which evolve shows you were actually at but uh your fellow people in the old line state did very well and were very receptive to this and it helped a lot yeah definitely you know a match like this could have flopped and it didn't which is a testament to both guys and the crowd you know mm-hmm. i guess like being respectful of what you know these two were trying to do here this feels very much like um like an exhibition match like it, it's it's one of those matches that I understand that this was one of Drew Gulak's last independent matches, and this was going to be the last time he faced Zack, and he wanted to have just a, a good old-fashioned technical showdown. Yeah, definitely. So, you're 31. Uh, I have to scroll back down to the 31s after <laughs> scrolling back up to see my notes for that match. My 31 is the second-to-last Scenic City Invitational match that I will mention, and it is a second round match pitting Chris Hero versus Chip Day. Okay, all right. I actually liked Kyle Matthews versus Chip versus um Hero more than the Chip Day match, so go ahead here. Oh, that's interesting. Um to put it simply, this is a real slobber knocker of a match pitting these these two fairly similar wrestlers against each other insofar as they are both uh big strikers, some of the best strikers in the world. Um it it's you know the usual hero bully formula, but because Day is such a formidable striker, he's able to hang with Hero more, and it adds an interesting twist to that tried and true formula. Um, it's it's I don't know. I think a big part of my <laughs> I think a big part of this match is the finishing sequence that totally blew my pants off, which sees Chip Day go up top for the Meteora, the um, the diving double knee drop to a seated opponent. And Chris Hero baits him in and catches him on the way down to roll back over top of him and bring him down in a gotch-style pile driver, which is an awesome near fall that I bit super hard for. Uh, and Hero stays right on his man afterwards and just lifts him up and stuffs him down with the hangman's elbow for the win. And I really enjoyed it. There's um, This is only like 13 minutes long, and I think there's a scant handful of matches that 
better use their time in 2016. Yeah, this was a match that when the Scenic City was getting announced and that these two were in it, this was a match that I was like, huh, it would feel weird if they didn't book this. Totally. Because it is, like you said, two pretty similar um, guys, similar acts with um being very strike heavy. So it seemed mm-hmm. like a natural thing to do. And it delivered in a way that I think was a good match. Yeah, 13 minutes, they used the time well. The finish, like you said, was pretty spectacular. And for a 13-minute <laughs> match that was... Uh, you know, not one of the bigger things in the tournament. Mm-hmm. They, had, they had one of the better finishes of the year, I thought. So, yeah. Yeah, and I can I can appreciate when when a match and performers realize that they don't have to be the biggest and best match best match in a tournament, but they still use their time effectively. Yeah. So my number thirty. Thirty. He may have this match at higher. You know. are you a Danny Brown fan? Yeah. Okay, I was like, just a quick segue into to music talk. <laughs> <laughs> There's now a show about Danny Brown's latest album. <laughs> uh, I could, I, we could, we could do a Danny Brown podcast at some point. <laughs> All right, my thirty is Io Shirai versus Mike Ibutani from Stardom, oh. and it's the May fifteenth match. Oh, interesting. It's not their year end match. I have their year end match higher. Okay, uh, I sadly. I don't know what it was, but I didn't have either one of those matches on my list. There was something lacking in them, but perhaps you can shed some light. So this match happens while Io and Mayu are still tag team partners. Still buddies. Because Mayu wins the Cinderella tournament, or... Is that the name of it? Yes. Yeah, so Mayu um, wins a title shot. No, she... Wait. Does she win that? No. No, yeah, she does. Okay. She makes it to the finals. I remember that. Yeah, she wins that. I was confused because Yoko Bito won the Stardom Grand Prix. So it's confusing yeah. that with Yoko Bito winning. But yeah, Mayu wins the Cinderella tournament. She gets a title shot against Io. In the build, they kind of showed some dissension and tag matches, getting frustrated with each other. At one point, then she fades off on opposite sides, but they were still, you know, presented as partners and friends. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a competitive rivalry between two friends, and it is something hateful, which it will turn into, you know, seven months down the line. But this match is probably uh, the more epically structured because it has a bit more time. And Io and Mayu kick the hell out of each other in this match. <laughs> yeah, they do. It is super stiff and brutal. And it's between two friends at this point. And then the finishing stretch and some of these the bumps they took, they take are completely nutty, like the mm-hmm. tiger suplex on the apron. That was a a spot that made the rounds on the internet that some people hated and some people lost their minds sure. for. <laughs> but a fantastic match that didn't uh, really dive dive too deeply into character work, but mm-hmm. it set the table for what would happen later on very well. Yeah, it's it's some primo Joshi action. It's good stuff. Yeah, so you're 30. My number 30 is... Uh, uh, one of, I think it's my favorite WXD or WXW match of the year. Uh, it's a, a really hot opener between Big Daddy Walter and David Starr from WXW's Dead End 15. It, um, I, I really like these two as competitors. I think they bring a lot of character to wrestling. Uh, they're, they're just enjoyable personalities to watch. Star, you know, the dickhead that he is, starts this match by ridiculing his much larger opponent, and Walter's size and strength quickly becomes too much for him to hang with, so he has to resort to, you know, like, cheap shots and arm work to take control, and uh, Walter (laughs) 
At one point, Walter unwisely uses that injured arm to waylay Star with a clothesline, a massive clothesline, uh, and it allows Star to cut him off uh, in this comeback with <laughs> with a back body drop into the corner turnbuckle, which is on the short list of the craziest goddamn bumps I've ever seen <laughs> to see <laughs> to see Big Daddy Walter soar through the air and take a back bump into the turnbuckle and then fall onto his head and neck. Uh, and they keep going back and forth, and slowly Walter makes his comeback and murders the poor guy with a big power bomb. And it's just, it's fast, it's colorful. I love these two. They're great on offense and defense, so it makes for a match that is, like, compelling every step of the way. It's not, like, uneven or anything with one guy in control and he's not good at it or, or whatever. It's it's uh, with one spot that blows my mind in a really good crowd, it's a match I like a lot. Yeah, this was one of the better matches that happened on WXW Shotgun TV. Totally. So, and you're someone that likes those short, compact matches, and this one mm-hmm. actually took it even a step further with some of the things they took, some of the things they did. So, yeah, yeah not a surprising pick. Um, this is your highest ranked w- w- um, WXW match, right? I think it is. It could be pleasantly surprised. Oh nope, two matches down. It's not. <laughs> All right. So, what's your twenty nine? My 29 is, uh, once again, your favorite wrestler in the world, Mike Quackenbush, taking on Johnny Kidd in Kidd's last singles match ever, and what is probably going to end up being one of Quack's last matches ever as well, at Chikara Anniversario, Anniversario, the Chamber of Secrets. I watched this match, but uh-huh. I'll let you go on about it first. Okay. Um... Before I say anything else, I want to make note that Vlad Radinov's introduction of this match, the ring announcer for, for Chikara these days. He's a geek. Uh, his, <laughs> he's a, yeah, I like him. He's a good dude. He's a friend. Uh, his running down the competitors and the rules of this contest with all of the fans in attendance crowded up against the ring and slapping on the on the mat, something they do quite often in Chikara for main events. Um, all of that got me really hyped. And it, it's... It's not too often in wrestling that I get like really excited for anything anymore, and I'd, I'd like to point out that Vlad Radinov's work here, as well as just the Chikara fans in general, like really made me excited for this. And you know what? It delivers. That excitement like sticks throughout the rest of this eight-round match, this uh, literally world of sport match, and it's really enjoyable. It's it's not often that um, or let me rephrase this: often when wrestlers try to replicate a specific style or match type or particular genre of wrestling. I feel that it comes across as real phony and hammy. Like it's, I'd I'd rather see people try to do their own thing than try to replicate something else poorly. But in this case with like a legend of a style and a guy who can hang with him on the mat coming together and doing a world of sport match, it, it feels super natural and super enjoyable and, I don't know. It's not it's not the kind of thing that would appeal to a lot of people, but it hits it hits a lot of notes for me. Yeah. Um, pretty much the things that you said you liked about it, about it not feeling like it's hamming up to an old era and, you know, not executing as well. Uh-huh. That's how it feels for me, and it's because of Quack, where I talked oh, about earlier, where Quack just doesn't seem genuine to me in what he does, whether it be being inspired by Lucha or World of Sport here. It feels fake. It feels like I hate using this term because it's super insulting in a way that I don't really mean it to be. Sure. But it, 
genuinely feels like cosplay, and I don't. Oh yes, no, totally. I use that all the time. Yeah, to and, I, and, I, and I hate using it, but this yeah. is one of those matches where it absolutely feels like cosplay. Uh, it's. A, I mean, it's. You're not wrong. It doesn't feel that way to me, but yeah, like it's. So, it's kind of a shame, but I. I totally understand where you're coming from. So that's it. There is, is Quackenbush good on the mat. Yeah, for sure he is. It's just mm-hmm. everything about Quackenbush feels fake, and having him in a World of Sports style match where they're doing rounds and all this just mm-hmm. feels fake in a way. Like if nothing else. Like there's not a lot of wrestling where I could say it feels artificial. Yeah. But this is one of those matches where even I am just like, you know, this isn't anything that I can believe in. <laughs> is there anything else? I don't even know. Cause is there anything else where that applies No, for no. you? Because, because for me, that happens like a lot. No, it doesn't. Like, that's the thing. Like the way I view wrestling, I never say that. Okay. But for some reason, and with Mike Quackenbush, he's the only person where everything he does just feels inauthentic. <laughs> oh man, I get it though. Like I, I don't feel it, but I feel I feel what you're what you're putting out there. Yeah. So to my twenty nine, it's Ray Hechicero versus Ray Bucanero from CMLL. It was one of the Dia de las Muertes shows. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to see this one, despite how much I love Hechicero. Yeah, and the thing about it is, uh. This is Hechicero's big moment. He's facing Ray Bucanero in Arena mm-hmm. Mexico. And first of all, the presentation and the stage look for the Dia de los Muertos shows mm-hmm. is very cool. And it plays into both guys' looks and gimmicks where Hechicero is this like cool-looking, almost demonic wizard. Mm-hmm. and Literally wizard, yeah. And Ray Bucanero has a look and like paint that goes along with it, too. So everything about it, like, aesthetically matches. And it's like, mm-hmm. a, in like, Arena Mexico is, like, dimly lit. It's a really cool um, match just for those standpoints that you should check out. But then the actual match itself is really good because Hechicero and Ray Bucanero have some great mat work together. And then it escalates a lot. And Hechicero was selling his leg. And Ray Bucanero, who has phoned it in a lot, the last few years is doing <laughs> yeah. some bonkers stuff, literally like doing topes and planches all in succession, diving off of the stage. The guy does some nutty stuff. And Hachicero, who is underrated and actually how athletic he is, mm-hmm. he is do- busting out some of the some of the nutty topes that he can do. And Hachicero winds up winning, and it's a big moment because Hachicero, who is a guy that was based in Monterey for so long. He took a gamble on himself, moving to Mexico City to be in to be in CMLL, and this was that gratification that what he did, busting his ass, you know, finally paid off. So it was a cool moment that, if you care about the story of Hechicero, is boosted, but by itself, it's still a great match. Was there another Rey Bucanero match this year that was like super big? Um, like, yeah, he had a um, hair match versus Super Crazy on the Anniversario show. Is that it? I, I was thinking he had something with, like, Barbaro or Dorada. Um, I don't know. I'm not, was, not sure if I'm... It was Super Crazy on the Anniversario show, and they had a hair versus hair. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, I don't know what I'm thinking of. Yeah, but you should watch this for sure. Definitely. All right, so I'll go with my 28 then. 
Okay. My 28 is AJ Styles versus Shinsuke Nakamura from New Japan's Wrestle Kingdom 10. Well, um, this did not make my list at all. And actually, um, I'm going to let you talk about it first. This is one of those things where on rewatch, I probably didn't like it as much as I did the first time. Okay. But I think it still feels special because obviously you have the hindsight of realizing it was AJ Styles, one of AJ Styles' last matches in New Japan, actually his second uh-huh. last match in New Japan. And then this was Shinsuke Nakamura's last big match. So it has that added um, feel to it on rewatch. But then it's a thing where it's a first time ever match that does feel like it. Uh, specifically, it's a, this match has not even once until now. Yeah, not even once. <laughs> that, that, no, that that was the line yeah. they had in the promo package. It was so funny. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I actually didn't remember that. But yeah, it is a match that legitimately has never happened at any point in time. They didn't even interact much in multi-man tags and stuff. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were never in the same blocks in G1s. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a match that they really did protect. Yeah, New Japan doesn't do that too much these days, and it, it felt good here. Yeah, they they really did protect this match and made it feel like a big deal, which is good when Okada versus Tanahashi is the main event, and that had happened, what, nine or ten times? Something, yeah. Yeah, so that was a good match to put underneath it, where it still had that freshness to it. And I think they went out there and delivered. AJ Styles playing with the fact that he had been out with a back injury is one of the more unheralded things about this match. Mm-hmm, very much so. Because it plays with real-life circumstances, and that's the thing that I like in my wrestling whenever it's done. Yes. You know, we, I mentioned it with Willow and versus Shane Strickland from Progress, yeah. and that's Will selling his shoulder. Right here is AJ Styles selling his back, and some people legit, legitimately thought at some points that he couldn't wrestle Jane Lethal totally. in that final battle. Or Totally. Yeah, so it's a great heel work from Styles to get the fans all worked up and worried for him, just to flip it back and, you know, still be a dick. Mm-hmm. And I thought these two had some great sequences together. The closing stretch, there's one mess up during the match where Styles goes for the silent DDT, which is the moonsault into a DDT thing. Uh-huh. And it's weird because for the last couple of years, it seems like no one could take that move. Well, it's a very difficult thing to pull off, like, to be fair. Yeah. And most of the people that he used to do it on regularly are like really athletic small guys. Yeah, that's what I'm like, but it was just something I've noticed that the last two or three years, that uh-huh. no one can seem to take the style in DDT to the point where he should probably just get rid of it in his moveset altogether. Sure. Because just it never comes across well. Um, but that's the only mess up about this match. Uh, like I said, it loses some of that uh, luster on the second watch. But I still highly enjoyed this, and for a large portion of the year, I thought it was uh, New Japan's best singles match. Um, this is, I don't know how I first felt about this match when it happened. Um, because usually when I watch, when I watch, uh, wrestling shows live, if I bother to do it, I will write about them as they're happening live to get sort of like an inclination of how, how I feel about it in the moment, which, uh, later when I review them in full and generally more concisely, I, 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 I'm able to capture some of that emotion, but here uh, I actually didn't. After after watching <laughs> Tomohiro Ishii versus Katsuhiro Shibata, I was spent and I didn't take notes on this in the main event. So I don't know how I felt about this when it happened, and then I rewatched it for the first time. I think like two weeks ago, 
and I hated it. Like it felt so contrived to me. Like it, it, it was this big, um, I, I, I brought up in our first podcast together for this, uh, the term set pieces to describe spots in wrestling that, that are like big dramatic moments that are supposed to get people like really riled up and into a match. And sometimes those work effectively for me and really get me excited. But here with like the bullet eating spot really early on and a lot of limb work that goes nowhere and AJ's bomaye that he hits and like the one arm styles clash, like they all felt I don't know. They, they didn't do anything for me. They left me cold. And so this match is like cool on some level. And there's some really gross stuff in it. Like the second to last Bomaye that Nakamura hits is super gross, but like it, I don't know, man, it doesn't do anything for me. And it's weird because people love it, but it's, it's, yeah. it's not my thing. Yeah. I can see not liking it. Like I said, on rewatch, it's definitely not as good as I thought it was sure. on the first watch. So to some level, I can understand where you're coming from on that one. So, what's your 28? Uh, here, let me close out this. I had to bring up a whole other thing of notes just to, <laughs> try, to, <laughs> try, to try to find my uh, thoughts on this, Mitch. My number 28 is two more guys that we've talked about a whole lot on this podcast. It's Chris Hero and Zack Super Jr. facing off at Evolve 60. Well, I have that match higher, so we'll have to wait on that. Okay. Well, that leads us right into my 27, which is Chris Hero and Zack Sabre Jr. facing off yet again, this time, at WXW's The Inner Circle 2. Alright, so this is interesting because you put two Sabre versus Hero matches back-to-back. Yes, and specifically I put one that is uh, most notably their smallest match higher than one of their more famous ones. Yeah, so I guess you could elaborate more on that because this match didn't make my list, but I okay. think it's great. <laughs> Uh, I think I love this one specifically because of how different it is compared to their other uh, bouts in the year. Um, Hero changes his game plan up a little bit. He goes after Zack's arm. Or no, he goes after Zack's leg. I'm sorry. After uh, in previous matches, just sort of like dominating him with his striking ability. Uh, and likewise, he does. It's interesting. He always does a lot of crowd work in these matches and in other matches. But here, um, I- I'm not sure if he does more of it on like a numeric level, but his crowd work feels much more effective because they're in this inner circle show where it's, they're at WXW's uh, wrestling Academy and there's only like 20 or 30 people in the audience. And his crowd work is so much more dynamic and sinister and kind of scary because like he always takes issue with certain people in the crowd, like saying, saying things or chanting things that he doesn't like. And in this much smaller, more intimate environment, this larging, this large hulking uh, monster of a man coming up to you and being like, cut that shit out is so much scarier. And it like adds an interesting dynamic to the match. Um, and this is, this is noteworthy too, because like Zach gives a better performance here and he actually gets the win, which he doesn't do very often against hero. And notably he doesn't do uh, in, uh, major promotions like Evolve or AEW. He only does it in like WXW or Limitless Wrestling. And I don't know. This is, it was smaller. It was more concise. It was more visceral. This was like, to make an analogy, this was the indie horror version of like their matches together. That is everything that a big budget horror movie like Insidious 4 or whatever isn't. And I'm a, and I'm a huge hipster. So I love that sort of thing. <laughs> 
Yeah, I get it. That's definitely uh, the more intimate match between those two. Mm-hmm. So, and I know you're someone that values that kind of stuff. That's why you like WXW so much. Totally. So, yeah, that's not a surprising pick. Just wanted to um, get that out there because I know a lot of people would, would probably, like, you know, be surprised that you'd have those, like, back-to-back and have that match higher. Yeah. Initially, um, earlier today, I was revisiting this list in preparation for our recording, and I had them wildly different, but I rewatched them and went through my notes for them, and I rearranged the numbers a little bit, and so they ended up back-to-back. All right. So, my number 27 is a match you may have higher, but it's Monster Express versus Berserk versus Dia Hearts from Dragon Gate February 4th. This is interesting because uh, it didn't make my list. I was wow. was sort of I was sort of let down by that match. Huh, okay. Um, why were you let, why were you let down by that match? Because I know for a lot of Dragon Gate fans, that might have uh-huh. been a match of the year. Yeah, totally. Like it was it was interesting because uh, generally when there's a consensus on big Dragon Gate matches, I tend to go with it because not not because I want to go with the flow or anything. It's just like uh, us Dragon Gate fans tend to think alike. But right, well, I have a question before you guys okay. get into it. Did you? How long, like after it happened, did you watch this match? I uh, didn't watch it live. I watched it um, when the footage went up, which I don't think was. Oh, it was a Corkin show, so it aired live. But I probably watched it like a week afterwards for the first time. All right. So I just I'm wondering because you said you get to wrestling late, so I wondered if you got to totally. late too. Totally, totally. Um, no, it's just it didn't it didn't hit me the way that uh, unit disbands matches usually do. Like for example. Uh, my number two match of the year in 2015 was a unit disbands match from Dragon Gate, but this one, I don't know, it didn't didn't hit the same notes for me. But why did you love it? I liked it because, well, first off, the pace of these unit disbandment matches and the fact that, you know, for having 15 people all in the same match or, uh-huh. you know, and to be able to work that kind of pace and still feel fresh after they do that match so often yeah. is a very admirable feat. And... Another thing is that it felt like Casey was really um, the yes. star here. Yeah, totally. This is, was like the beginning of Casey's awesome 2016 run. Yeah, and Casey was the sole focus here. He was the sole survivor from Dia Hearts. Mm-hmm. He's trying to fight off Tazawa and Yoshino from Monster Express. He's trying to fight off uh, Naruki Do and Yamato from Berserk. And he's like fighting for his life here because he doesn't want his stable to be disbanded. Mm-hmm. So. He puts on a great performance there. I believe Shingo Takagi gets illuminated by Sachi Hoko Boy. Yep, which was awesome, which was exactly. a great payoff. You know, a great payoff to a mini feud that was happening throughout, you know, 2015 and 2016. Yeah. I don't know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of little things about this match that, you know, people picking up certain pinfalls. And, like, I believe T-Hawk pinned, uh, no, Big Arshimizu pinned T-Hawk. Yeah. Yes, because I think that then kicked off their two singles matches together that eventually led to them becoming a tag team. Yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting thing there because those two have kind of been paired together as generational rivals. And mm-hmm. um, Masaki Mochizuki doing a dive. Yeah, his big, his big, awesome like Undertaker dive. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I... There's there's lots of things in this match that I, like I love, and it's 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 typical big multi man tag team match in Dragon Gate that I really enjoy in front of a crowd that loves it, but I'm not sure what it was. It just, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't hit the same notes for me. It's like, maybe it's just in comparison to other unit disbands matches that I didn't enjoy it so much. And that's what turned me off. All right. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I have another unit disbandment match, disbandment match higher. Okay. 
All right. So what's your number 27? Uh, 26. 27 was that uh, inner circle match. No, that was my 27. All right. Hold on. You gave your 27 now as the inner circle? Yes. Well, I guess that's my 26, and then we'll be done with the podcast. Once well, you... no, I have to do my 26. Jesus Christ. I am so... <laughs> if, for people that don't know, we had a lot of recording difficulties during this. Yes. This has been a this has been a hard time getting through this podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, we're, so we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're cutting it off at 26, and then we'll do 25 to 1 on another installment. Yes. Purely because there's just been so much trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now we're finishing finishing this off with our 26s. All right. So I'll number... go first. All okay. Right. It does it. You don't mind? Go ahead. You can go. Okay. Uh, keeping in this theme with Dragon Gate, I had a big uh, trios match that main evented a show and was a nice emotional send off for one of the most beloved members of the roster. It was Akira Tozawa, Masada Yoshino, and Naruki Doi facing off against Yamato, Shingo Takagi, and BB Hulk from The Gate of Destiny 2016. I don't have this match, so you can take it away. Whoa, that kind of surprises me, actually. Well, here's the thing. I like it as a send-off to Tozawa, uh-huh. and there's a lot of callbacks that I like. And Sure. But as a match, it was like, all right. I, I mean, not all right. It was an actively good match. It's just, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, 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 both, I both think it's incredible, but I understand where you're coming from. But I'll lay the scene a little bit more. Um, right. More so than, like, I think any Dragon Gate match in 2016, I think this highlights why exactly i'm a dragon gate fan it's something that you and i have talked about a little bit more um it's it's these colorful endearing characters interacting with each other through multi-layered storytelling over the years and like for that reason it's sort of it's sort of the match that if you're not a dragon gate fan this will do nothing for you you know there's and it's like something that like might irritate some people when they hear because it's like Uh it kind of sounds like an elitist thing sure yeah like it really does but for something like Dragon Gate, um, like specifically this match, mm-hmm. where Shingo Takagi and BB Hulk and Yamato are on the same team, yeah. and Shingo Takagi is such a dick because both of those guys hate his guts. Uh huh. You won't get that, and you won't care for it. Yeah. If you don't watch Dragon Gate, and you won't you won't get or care for the fact that Yoshino and Doi are teaming for the first time together in years, or that Doi was recently kicked out of Berserk, and so he hates. Your- Shingo Takagi, but he turned on Yamato earlier in the year, so he hits Yamato as well. You won't care that Hulk used to team with Tozawa way back in the day. You won't care that Tozawa and Yoshino hit Shingo for leaving Monster Express. Like, there's so much going on here. Yeah, and like, it's like... You know, when you when we lay it out, it's just like, there's a lot of shit in this match. Yeah, there's and this a ton. Is, like, this is probably, you know, you said it, but this is kind of like a quintessential, like, drag game match, because like, it embodies, you know, mm-hmm. why... I like the promotion, why you like the promotion, and mm-hmm. what is like the natural appeal to it, where it is these characters that have known each other for almost a decade at this point, mm-hmm. having a match that is almost um unheard of, really. Because totally. in other graduations, it was the Gaijin getting sent off, like Neville being yeah. sent off, or Apollo Crews being sent off. Uh, Uha but... Nation, don't use, don't use his <laughs> WWE name. <laughs> Yes, but those are big emotional moments. But those were also for, you know, people that weren't natives. Imagine how emotional and surreal it is when yeah. it's a guy that is a product of the Dragon Gate dojo. A true born. Yeah. A Dragon Gate true born. Yeah. It's um it's it it, it it's so reliant on lore 
on top of being just, you know, a big crazy trios match that like it kind of gets lost on certain people. But for diehard Dragon Gate fans like you or I, this is something special. And I remember after this happened, uh, I mentioned to you in the Wrestling With Words Slack chat that like in a different time or a different year, maybe um, this would have been like my match of the year because yeah. it's so I, I get caught up in it like it. It rewards close inspection and a careful eye and just knowing how much has gone on between these six people. And it's it's something wholly Dragon Gate. Like, other promotions don't manage to pull off this kind of thing. Yeah, like only, like, CWF Mid-Atlantic is, like, and cl- like close when it comes to long-term totally. storytelling and making, like, you know, things rewarding for fans. Yeah. Like we said, we laid it out. You know, Tazawa's leaving, and he's teaming with Yamato and, I mean, um, Doi and, and Yoshino, who are a prolific tag team in Dragon Gate lore, who, mm-hmm. all, who are on and, off, on and off again teammates. And then Tazawa used to team with BB Hulk, who's teaming with BB, who's teaming with Yamato and Shingo, and Yamato and Shingo used to be stable mates. And then Shingo turned on Yamato, and then BB Hulk and Shingo have been rivals forever. And then Doi hates Shingo because, um, he, he just kicked him out. Him out. And then Shingo used to be a Monster Express. It's like, and there's, like, Tazawa was just beaten by Yamato for the Dreamgate belt, which he's never been able to hold. Like, there's there's just so much stuff here. There's so much lore here. Yeah, and, like, it really is, like, just the Dragon Gate match. Yeah. And it happens in a special setting because Tazawa is leaving. And uh-huh. even saying that now, it's kind of hard to, hard to take in that Tazawa isn't in Dragon Gate anymore. I remember thinking... um, because there was a there's a there's a period of a couple of weeks where they didn't have shows in between this and their next Korokin. And uh I remember thinking on the next Korokin and the next couple of shows after that that like Tazawa's uh Tazawa's departure was so heavily felt. Like there was such a lack of energy on those shows because of him. And it's we don't know exactly how his how his leaving is going to impact the promotion, it's just too soon to tell, but like He's sorely missed. Yeah, definitely. Especially when he's not even on TV. Yep. It can't, that makes it, damn that, it. Makes, that makes it even harder for the swallow. It's, it's like, if you're going to take this out, at least use him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, God. Um, There's, um, I, I've brought it up a lot, but like, Tozawa's entrance for this match hits me really hard. Um, specifically, two notes in particular, where his theme song, the lyrics of his theme song, um, which is called Be Naked. Uh, it goes, one more Be Naked Baby. And hearing that one last time is really emotional. And then seeing him really falter and barely able to pull off the big stretch on the top rope is, like, really, really sentimental. Well, um, I'm glad you had that uh, match place where you did because mm-hmm. it's kind of attached to the match that I have. Oh, cool. It's Akira Tozawa versus Yamato from Dragon Gate Dangerous Gate. Awesome. It didn't make my list, but it's well worth talking about. Man, a lot of Dragon Gate fans I saw didn't like this match as much as I did. Sure. And I don't know what it was about this, but it hit me on so many levels. It was a match uh-huh. where, at first, a lot of people thought this was Tazawa's last match. Yeah, we all... Um... I was pissed off after this because it ended without him having this graduation ceremony. Yeah, everyone was like fucking mad. We thought that they were going to send him off without one, and I was livid about it. (laughs) But then 
But then a couple weeks later, he's like, no, I'm going to have it at Get a Destiny. And I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, that's cool. Because it's like, it would make sense for them to not give him a graduation ceremony, given his history in the promotion. Yeah, it, w- it would be a super petty thing to do that would... Totally. Would have they're made super sense. petty, man. They're super petty. <laughs> like, how dare you go from our dojo and mm. betray us? Like, that would make some, that would make sense considering Tazawa's history. But mm. the thing about this match is that you mentioned Be Naked Baby and it being an emotional theme, you know, at Gate of Destiny. Mm. Man, he is literally crying while he's yeah. doing it in this match. He's yeah. coming out and doing his stuff and... Even while he's on the ramp, he's like has tears in his eyes. And this the last Dreamgate shot he's ever got. It's the title that he's never held. Mm-hmm. And he's facing Yamato. He got the title shot by pinning Yamato during the World Tag League. But um, about this match, it's like Yamato had just turned babyface not too long ago. Mm-hmm. But he kind of reverts back to being the old Yamato here, where he's kind of dickish. Like he's yeah. super like um dismissive he's kind of cold he's calculated mm-hmm. working on Tazawa's leg and then Tazawa is playing the role he's born to play he's born to play a fiery sympathetic baby face yeah he's the working most lo- from below yeah he's the most lovable person and you want to see Tazawa win so badly but Yamato keeps cutting him off and there's a nasty spot here and it's a great visual one of the best visuals to happen in all of wrestling in 2016 but uh Yamato does the sleeper suplex to Tozawa. Yeah. He get oh, and Tozawa like slowly gets up. And usually that'd be like a fighting spirit fighting spirit spot in some places. Yeah. But here, he's just standing there like, you know, like a zombie. Like he yeah. is done. He, he can't move. Yeah, he is like still his facial expression, there's nothing there. And it's a tremendous visual because it's like Yamato's fixing his hair and then like in the foreground, like, you know, Tazawa is just dead, essentially. Yeah. And I don't know, that was a really great thing about it in the finish here where you really want Tazawa to win, but then Yamato, you know, kinda kills it dead, but not without Tazawa giving a fight. Like he takes mm-hmm. out of a um Lagara um Galleria at one, then he takes another one, and then Tazawa fires up and runs off the ropes and the Yamato catches him in a running galleria. It's a really great match and at the moment, in like in the moment, I genuinely felt like it was Tazawa's last match. So yeah. maybe if I rewatched it, it wouldn't have that same you know appeal. Sure, but because you know, I still feel that emotion. Like man, we almost lost Tazawa there. It's important to consider how you felt in that time and in that place when when talking about wrestling. Yeah, because you know that really is a match that hinges on. In context, people thought it was Tazawa's last match. Yeah. So, and they worked it like it was, too. Yeah, it wor- he worked it like it was his last big match. And he left it all out there. Yeah. But it there kept, was some... Go ahead. But it, but, but it made Yamato, in his first title defense, mm-hmm. look great. So, yeah. We talked about symbolism several times already on this podcast. And there was a bit of symbolism after this match that hit me very hard. And it was... Uh, it was... Uh, Tozawa and Yamato in the ring together. Uh, they cut some promos. Like Yamato gives this big emotional send-off for Tozawa. And uh, the Dreamgate belt is laying on the on the mat between the two of them. And Tozawa, after you know giving this, this heartfelt speech, goes to pick it up 
to put it around Yamato's waist and he can't pick it up at first. He's just too exhausted. And it hit me really hard seeing Tozawa being unable to lift this title that he never won. Yeah, it seems like, you know, his shoulders was never were never too big enough to hold this mantle. And uh-huh. then, like, you know, the real-life circumstances that the company just never had faith in him on that level to give him that. Like, you know, yeah. the guy won his first singles title in the company in 2015. Uh-huh. He'd, been, he'd been in there... Ten you know, years into his career. Yes. Yeah. So, that's a lot to take in there. And, like, yeah, that him not being able to pick up the belt at first is like, you know, he could never get it done. Even though he got so many chances, I guess. Like, he faced... Um, sure. He faced he Mochizuki, more, he faced Shima, like, yo, he had chances, but never got He's had more Dreamgate title shots than anyone who has never won the belt. Yeah, that's a really interesting tidbit that I don't think I remembered. Yeah, okay. uh, someone someone wrote an article and brought that up, and I was like, that's an interesting factoid. This is, um, we talked about in the last match, all the lore of Dragon Gate and how important that is to these big matches. Even more so is like the backstage lore, like the yeah. reality of certain situations and how that adds an extra element to these to these matchups. Yeah, you know, the Dragon Gate, you know, lore on the surface is kinda, you know, there's a lot of hatred, but mm-hmm. it's kind of a, on like for some people it's like a bubbly, fun loving promotion. Totally. So, but man, the backstage, you know, <laughs> lore in Dragon Gate. There is some super petty, super um strict stuff. It's kind of a terrible place. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's a interesting way to leave off. That's our twenty six, and I have maybe like three more, three more Dragon Gate Dragon matches to talk about after that. Uh, do you know how many Dragon matches you have left? Or I don't. That might have been my highest. I don't recall. Really? Nope. I have one more. That's higher. All right. So we'll have more Dragon Gate talk on the next installment. But due to our uh, <laughs> recording flubs, we'll be cutting it short so I don't make Brock's life any harder. Um, Hopefully neither one of us die after this recording. (laughs) But we'll be back next time for 26 to our number. Dividing lines, deep set and paved Two parts to wonder fruits Depart and sever desires to pursue And the soul chose To cause the tide to enforce the divide This old emotion is more than time I'll destroy my See here I trace my steps To where my sense left and rain And turn my sense to much This slowly seeping straight through the crust Now let these things have gone slip down To where my head once sunk and drowned just away for a while to see my body has merged to the deep cool sea. But my soul flows, a dreamless mind's storyline. The soul's broken down, borderline. To cause 